Everybody, we're back. Chad Belding with This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast, episode number six. Today's guest is, uh, he probably does not need any introduction, at least in our immediate area and on the national uh, duck calling and duck hunting scene, fly fishing scene. Um, He hails from the state of Virginia, but he's made his living in the state of Nevada for over the last 30 years. He's the current president of the Canvasback Duck Club, historic duck club down in the Stillwater Marsh of the Fallon, Nevada area. You name it, he's done it. Big game, fly fishing, trips all over the world, waterfowl hunting, including ducks, divers and puddle ducks, geese of the Canada variety, the speckle belly variety, the snow goose variety, as well as swans. So my guest today is none other than Dave Stanley, um, you guys are going to be amazed with what this guy's accomplished in his outdoor career. He's very humble. He doesn't like me to brag on him, but I do every time I get the chance. When it comes to just presence in the outdoors and the way that he treats the people that he involves himself with in the outdoors, the way he teaches, the way he passes on his knowledge to the next generation, I've never seen anybody better at it. And not to mention, he can absolutely kill the heck out of anything that you put in front of him. So uh, Dave Stanley, he like I said, he doesn't need any introduction, but he's here today with me. It's taken me two months now now to get him to come and sit down with me for the podcast because he's so busy but dave thank you for being here how are you buddy i'm doing great man thank you for having me dave just real quick to start off what's up with the weather right now going on and i'm, and I'm hearing it's not just in our area but what's what have you seen it like this in the last, how long has it been it's been a while i mean we had snow day before yesterday and it's going to be 78 on sunday or something crazy like that and and it'll snow again you know i mean it's just been um it's been a cold long winter and it doesn't want to give up you know with all of your years living in the, you know, I call this the, you know, the Truckee Meadows, the Sierra Valley, the Sierra Mountain Range. Mm-hmm. Is this common to see this kind of a weather pattern or is this kind of unusual? It's unusual because if you go back to duck season this year, I mean, November and January were, you know, we never had any weather at all. I mean, it was 65 degrees both of those months and normally it's freezing and we're hunting in the ice. We did get a little good hunting weather in December and got to shoot some ducks in the ice, but uh uh, and then we came out of January, February was pretty warm, and then it got cold. And then March, we had an amazing March as far as uh, precipitation goes, you know, tons of snow and rain and uh, really caught us up for the year because we were way behind. When you say caught us up for the year, last year we had a, a record snowfall of like 850 inches, to which, you know, and we'll talk about it more here in a little bit, but the Truckee River was in trouble. Our lakes and our reservoirs were in trouble. Last year's snowpack and snowfall put us back in, in a position to where it's plentiful now. And mm-hmm. if we didn't get that, that March that we had, which they said was like the third or fourth, you know, largest precipitation in, in March history or in Nevada history on since they started recording that, would we have been in trouble of another drought with the year we had last year or would it have been, what would have happened? Well, no, we would have, we would have, we would have made it through this year, 2018, no problem, just because of the storage and the reservoirs and things like that. Um, some of the smaller streams, certainly the little mountain creeks and stuff would have suffered. But, you know, when you get that big shot of water in March, I mean, that's, that's the best water there is. Cause it, you know, it's there ready to go. And, uh, um, so, you know, we're in good shape now, probably for this year and next year. That's the, that's the, the tough thing about where we live in the desert is, uh, the high desert is that, you know, you have the second largest snowpack in recorded history last year and the largest in some parts of the Sierra. And then, you know, two years later, you could be back in a drought cycle just because you can only save so much of it. And you're used to that because you live in here the last 30 years. You've seen it yeah. go in and out of you oh. know, sometimes you didn't even have enough water to duck hunt. And other times you had too much and it spread them out. So, I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, several times. I think I moved here in 1979, so almost 40 years now, and uh, it uh, it has gone from you know I've seen the marsh that we duck hunt in be completely dry for two years at a time, and and to like it was last year, completely full. And where are you going to put the rest of the water? Um, this is a this is going to throw you, and I just I figured you know I know what we're going to talk about today with the state of Nevada and duck hunting and where you hunt and where you travel and where your fishing and hunting career is taking you. The kids you have raised with Katie and John David, the other kids that you have mentored and been an inspiration for their fathers to get them in the outdoors. I just want to start off with a uh, just a, a very weird topic. I started thinking about last night, thinking about our podcast because in your history. And in your lifetime, horses were a big part of your life. Yep. I want you to talk a little bit about what you did with horses. And where I'm going with this is that I, I took a drive the other day from Reno to Urington and I went over the new USA Parkway and I saw probably 100 to 150 Mustangs. I want you to talk about the you're a horse lover. You made a living in horses. Your daughter is an equestrian lover. Your, 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 your whole family has a history in it. What is a wild Mustang? Do they serve a purpose? Are they inhabited? Are they locals or, or are they foreign animals? Give, give me an idea of, of, of all of that because there's a huge argument. Sure. What, what are they good for? Are they bad for our wild lands? Talk to me a little bit about your history with horses and then go and move it into Mustangs. So I, I grew up on a horse farm in Virginia. And um, really when I was 16 or 17, I uh, started working at a fish hatchery because I'd had enough of horses. I mean, literally there was 400 plus horses on the farm when I left when I was that age. And, uh, and then I came back to it when I got out of college, I moved to Reno to sell horses with a fellow. We put on public auctions all around the country and that's what I did for a few years. And during that time I bought the fly shop and that became my career. And, and uh, a few other things happened in there, a couple kids and, you know, met you, yeah. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so the horse thing has always been a part of my life. My daughter is crazy about them and, and always has been. And, uh, um, you know, and that's a good thing. But the, when you talk about the wild horses, quote unquote, wild horses that live in Nevada, you know, the, it's, it's a problem. I mean, our, we, we live in the driest state in the country. We have half of all the wild horses in the West in that state. Okay, so that's a problem to start with. Um, secondarily, you know, they're not split-hoofed animals. Think about all of the big ungulates that live on the, on the the out there in the desert. Every one of them has a split hoof. There's a reason for that. They don't tear up the vegetation. Horses, big old clunky foot, you know, and, and they, they're very hard on the vegetation. They're very hard on the springs. Um, the BLM is very underfunded in their wild horse program. Uh, um, to, you know, to be able to do something about it. At one point, two years ago, half of all the wild horses in Nevada were in captivity in one of the many BLM facilities, one of which is 10 miles down the road here. You see it, you know. Um, and so when you're taking care of those things inside of pens, thousands and thousands of them, you know, their wild horse budget gets chewed up pretty fast. When you say they they cause havoc on vegetation in springs, and They're, springs and springs they're a big animal i mean a horse weighs a lot of them. when it's 95 degrees on a mid-august day i've seen them laying right in the middle of a spring where i've all i've also seen bighorn sheep and antelope and mule deer drinking out of when they do that and they put that body weight on them and do they affect the flow of that natural spring and do they mess with the water sources for the other 
for the obviously they do mess with the food sources for the other wildlife populations what about those springs though how do they affect those springs with their body weight and the, the heat well one of the things that horses do in general at water sources they dig with their feet right and i've seen places where i've seen springs in drought years where a horse would walk up in front of you and maybe i'm hunting antelope so i'm in a little blind on that spring right and when a wild horse walks into that spring it goes out of sight and it's right in front of you it's 20 yards in front of you and it's because they've dug it out so much um, and when you get into the, uh, the smaller water sources, I mean, the little seeps and stuff, I've watched horses go in there and, you know, they can drain it right then. I mean, it'll fill back up, but you know, it's, it's, uh, they're big animals. They require a lot of water and, you know, you 10 or 15 of them go into a little spring on the side of the hill someplace and, you know, they can suck it dry pretty fast. So there is a roundup program where you see sure. wranglers go out and, and round up these. Is there another option? Is we're, I don't want to say the word under siege, but there's a lot of wild horses. You said half of the wild horses or Mustangs in the West United States live in the state of Nevada. Yeah. Is there, what can we do to the, is there anything that's being done or is it just so politically incorrect to want to control these animals that we're at a loss? It is, it is um, politically incorrect. I can remember when I was a little kid back in the sixties, seeing the, the wild horse, um, commercials on tv wild horse annie and all and i mean they developed a network where they raise money for these things and and um you know i I get it people love horses that's fine but these are most of them are feral horses you know and and the ranchers would be the first to tell you that when they have a tough year you know they'll turn their horses out on the range and then go collect up the ones they need next spring it's not necessarily all of them though and that's been done over many years i'm not pointing the finger at today's ranchers i mean that's been the case for 100 150 years um so anyway that you know the it it they are feral horses it's not the 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 dreamy notion that you know every little girl has of this you know beautiful wild animal with its mane flowing in the wind and everything i mean they're they're in most cases not that great a horse's confirmation wise too you know and you come from, like we said before, you come from a family history of, of raising horses, breeding horses, high grade, you know, like big stock of horses. You and Katie go out to one of these BLM captivity centers and you, let's say you adopt one of these Mustangs. Are they easily trainable? Can you, can you train them or is it, is it just a lost cause to even think about that? No, it can be done. The problem is the process. Um, if you wanted to adopt a wild horse, they have to come and check your facility you have to agree to keep the thing. You can't just take it and then three months later you decide, ah, this doesn't work. You either have to give it back to them. You can't sell it. You can't, you know, it's it's very restrictive, the program. Um, and the ones that are, uh, you know, if, if you get a young horse, young horse is a young horse. They don't know any different. You know, yeah, you can train them for sure. For sure you can. But so many of the animals in those detention centers, <laughs> for lack of a better term, are um, adult animals and, you know, trying to train you know, the old phrase, you can't teach a dog new tricks. An old dog new tricks is, you know, appropriate there. I mean, it's it's hard to train old horses. It is. Yeah. Not impossible, but hard. So, as a man that hunts wild game, sits on a lot of the different boards for the Department of Wildlife, Game Commission, president of the Canvasback Club, you, you're you a horse lover, but you will be one of the first ones to say that there is an issue and a problem in the state of Nevada with the wild horse. There's no question. It no is. Question. There's, okay. It's a big problem. When you think back on what you've accomplished over just the last, I just, you know, I've known you since 1998, that time frame there. And, you know, it's been 20 years since we've known each other. And 
you mentioned in, in when you're talking about when you moved to Nevada and you purchased the fly shop, you're you're a fly fisherman by heart and a duck hunter secondarily and a big game third, or is it all on the same level for you as a as a person when I talk about fly fishing, waterfowl hunting, big game hunting? Is it in that order or how does it go? Well, it goes you know, to be realistic, what I'm doing at the time is, you know, I mean, it all, it all gets my, you know, engine cranking. Right. But the reality is I got in the fishing business because I, as I said earlier, I think I used to work in a fish hatchery in, in Virginia and, uh, for four or five years. And, um, one of the guys I worked with there told me, man, if you love to hunt, work for the fisheries division, if you love to fish, work for the, you know, the game division. And so, uh, I, at that time was planning to be a, a wildlife biologist and, um, so that's, you know, kind of the way I did it. And, and I didn't end up being a wildlife biologist, but when I had the opportunity to make the outdoors, my business, I chose fishing because it wouldn't conflict with hunting season. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you get to hunting season, I loved a big game hunt. I mean, my, the, the, the reality in Nevada is it's the only state in the lower 48. You cannot buy a big game tag over the counter. So big game hunting's tough here. You have to put in for uh, a lottery draw every year and uh but we have a lot of opportunity and i've been lucky enough to you know harvest animals i would have never dreamed of as a kid in virginia you know rocky mountain or california bighorn sheep and desert bighorn sheep and antelope and elk and you know none of that stuff both like archery that. and rifle yeah, correct? yeah yeah exactly and, bef- and before your dad who was a you know just an awesome man he passed away a few years ago you you actually got to share quite a few big game hunts with him as well i did i did when we moved out here and uh, he and i did a little bit of deer hunting when we when i was a kid but my dad he raised bird dogs he loved to hunt quail and and he loved to hunt ducks and I never saw my dad hunt over a decoy until I provided the decoys for him to hunt over. Really? He was a jump shooter and, and a good one. But, uh, you know, my earliest memory is is him taking me duck hunting with him one day and setting me in a blind and putting this old sweater around me and telling me not to get out of the blind because we're surrounded by water that's over my head. I think I was like three years old. And he went off, and I could hear him shoot every now and then, and he came back a couple hours later with a stringer full of ducks and Said, all right, let's go home. Woodies, <laughs> Woodies and Mallards, yeah. Virginia, yep. Was Alan with you? He wasn't born. Yet. He wasn't born. Well, yet. he would have. Yeah, he would have been like a year old though. Yeah. And Alan, when I say Alan, that's your brother, Alan yep. Stanley. He's from, he lives in Delaware now. Has Alan, Alan Stanley game calls. Awesome hunting family. Um, when it comes to, and we'll go into this more later, but there was a time when the Stanley family, where there was. Alan, you, John, David, Bonds, all competing, and Katie. There's been several Jacob and Bonds. Six of us, I think, at one time. Six of us in the World Duck competition <laughs> yeah. in Stuttgart. Yeah, I remember seeing the pictures. And Alan's had quite a bit of success. Not oh. nobody touches JD's success with seven top ten finishes at Stuttgart in the World Duck Calling Championship. But right. you talk about a calling family. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But the big game part of it, you're going into that. So you got the fishing right. and the big game. And- so so the fishing became my job and, you know, my career really. But I still love to fish. I mean, I went last night, you know, that's it's, you don't get over that. Um, the big game hunting, I kind of got into it more when I got out here. But my, uh, you know, nothing, nothing is as much fun as watching ducks come into a decoys. You know, it's just... It's just, 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 better than just hearing you say that and yeah. seeing the look on your face across this table right now. Uh, and I don't mean to sound cliche-ish, but you get goosebumps. Like just thinking about when we laying in those blinds in Alberta two years ago and me and you're just giggling with mallards <laughs> landing all around us. I mean, it's just, yeah. and that's where I was going with my question is that, and I talked to Rock Merlot about this same thing is he loves to fly fish. 
and there's a there's a certain amount of solitude in fly fishing where there's there's the loneliness of it there's the the time to think and and and, and recharge your batteries and but duck hunting isn't like that. It can be, but duck hunting's no more as the camaraderie and the the cutting up and the blind. You don't have to be quiet all the time. You can cook. They can't smell you. Um, that's what I love about the sport. And but then you can go get your fly rod and go on a a, a small creek or a river, or out to a big you know, body of water like Pyramid Lake and stand on a ladder by yourself for four hours and just sit there and, and be one with yourself. Is that kind of what you get out of it? Like you, there's a balance there, right? There is, there is. And like last night I said, I went fishing, I went to pyramid, which is right out by where we both live. And, and, uh, you know, it was one of those amazing nights where a storm came in and it rained a little bit. And then there were rainbows and the, the sun's coming through the clouds and the pyramid was all lit up and, you know, just all the stuff you see out there when you go out there regularly. And it's, it's beautiful. And, and yeah, that, that, the fly fishing part of it for me or the fishing part of it in general is more, um, particularly trout fishing is, is, is more restorative. You know, you just go out and it's kind of a good place to recharge your battery and think about stuff that's on your mind and whatever. And and it's quiet, like you say. Thinking back when I was, you know, the, maybe the mid eighties, late eighties, there was a show on TV called fish in the West. And I remember the episodes and I'd watch it every week and they would do episodes out of pyramid to this day, 2018. It's been a long, you know, it's been 30 years since then. Why does that Lake work? Why is it such a destination? Well, you can go out there at times and the, the entire shoreline is lined with shore fishermen, yep. ladders with fly fishermen, boats all over the place with with trolling and that going why does it work and why has it become such a phenomenon when it comes to and i i assume it's the cutthroat trout it is and and the uh, you know the biggest cutthroat trout in the world are caught in pyramid lake every year you know um are there other with rare but, sorry with sorry rare to, sorry to interrupt but are there other places that have cutthroat trout or is this like oh, the only oh sure there are yeah and and the species that's here the lahontan cutthroat trout which was part of the lahontan sea you know which covered the great basin part of the united states for you know millennia um that they're they are scattered elsewhere as well but for whatever reason the you know the the makeup of pyramid lake is where they do the best and up until, well, I moved here in 79, up until like 2007, I think. Yeah, 2007. The fishing at the lake would be good, it would be bad, it would be good, bad, whatever. A big fish was 15 or 16 pounds, which is a huge trout, don't get me wrong. And then the tribe um, hired some geneticists to go around the state to the different watersheds and find the closest genetic match to the fish that used to be in Pyramid Lake because there's, like, they took scale samples from the world record. The largest cutthroat trout ever caught on rod and reel was caught in Pyramid, like 41 pounds or something ridiculous. But they took a scale off of that fish, so they have the genetic code, right? So anyway, they go around and look, and they found them in a little creek called uh, Pilot Peak Creek, which is on a mountain right on the Utah-Nevada border. The biggest fish in that creek is probably 11 or 12 inches long. But they brought them back to Pyramid Lake uh, with the help of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They raised them in the hatchery. They released them in the lake. They clipped them and marked them so that they were the pilot peak fish were separate from the fish that are currently in there, which were the Summit Lake fish. And you know, In seven years, those fish were 20 pounds. I mean, that's crazy growth for any freshwater fish, but particularly for, for trout. And so, you know, it's it's... You know, the, the, the popularity of it is there's not many places you can go with 
little skill or knowledge of the water and stand out there, huck it out in the lake and have a chance to get your fly in front of fish that size and catch them. Is pyramid a freshwater body of water? Yeah, it is, but it's, it's real alkaline water, you know. Um, but yeah, it's where the Truckee River ends. The, the river that drains Lake Tahoe flows, you know, out of the Sierra through Reno out into the desert and dumps into Pyramid Lake. And it's a, it's a, a true desert reservoir in that, that there is an inflow but no outflow. So evaporation takes it down in the summer and fall and runoff brings it back up in the spring and summer. So if God, call, if God calls your cell phone and says, Dave, I know you're going fishing at Pyramid tomorrow. What do you want the weather to be like? What do you tell God? <laughs> I want about a 15-mile-an-hour breeze, uh, cloudy, and, uh, you know, about 45 air temperature. Water temperature, a little warmer than that, not much, 46 or 7 degrees, and, uh, you know, good chop on the water. And those fish, they don't like sunlight because they live in deep water most of the year. They live down in 80 to 120 feet of water, but they come into the shallows both to feed and as the water cools off in the winter. And then by springtime, you know, late February, March is when they spawn in April. And so they come in the shallows to do that. They go up, try to go up the Truckee River or they have an artificial spawning stream there in the town of Sutcliffe that the fish actually come back to. And so, you know, that's what gets them in the shallows where we can, where we can fish for them with a fly rod. 15 mile an hour wind, you can cast in that? Yeah. Really? be blowing right in your face but yeah you just want the chop you know that then they're comfortable in that shallow water you, you'll see them cruising by last night you could see fish when you say shallow how deep you talking well i mean you're wading out there and then standing up on your little three or four step kitchen ladder so you're only in water that's three feet three and a half feet deep you know you're probably looking in front of you it's maybe four or five feet deep but yeah, they're just cruising along. So then it, are there drop where you're fishing out there? Are there cliffs and it drops off? Yeah. The, the natural lay of that land would be like canyons underneath that it's water. It's like stair steps. You know, it goes down a little because it's all sand. So the storms change it frequently, you know, where, where the drop off is and how steep it is and everything. But it'll go out in front of you and then drop off three or four feet and make a shelf or like a step, really. And then those fish find those edges, the shelves, and they'll just follow them. You know, they'll, they'll swim around the lake along those shelves. Looking so, for food, and at this time of year, getting ready to spawn. So you get the weather that you want out there, and then I know you have an awesome arsenal because you you you, you know your way around. But what what works out there on that weather day you just described? What are you f- dry fly nymphs? What works at Pyramid Lake? There's there's two basic ways they fish it now. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can fish it, but the two most popular ways are you fish with a floating line and an indicator or a bobber, right? And then you hang a couple of weighted midges underneath that that are probably size 10 or 12 flies um and you know you get a little chop so that indicators you know floating up and down as the waves come by and so it's jigging your flies underneath there you know they're jigging up and down and and you can put it right on the shelf where the fish are cruising and that's the most effective way to catch them you're going to catch more fish doing that than most any other way you fish and then the other way to fish is the historic way we've fished it forever which is with a fast sinking line um, shooting head, whatever, and you just chuck it out there as far as you can with a couple of, uh, you know, woolly worms or flies with foam, foam on them so they'll float up off the bottom a little, and then you just strip it back in across that sandy bottom and intercept the fish that are cruising. Is that a totally different um, approach or application of fly fishing than the Truckee River would be? Oh, yeah, yeah, completely different. Um, so because is- you're dealing with moving water versus, you know, sedentary water in a lake, um, you can see the fish much easier at Pyramid than you can see them in the river. And, you know, you, you pretty much know what the depth is. It's not going to change. Like, you move 20 feet up or downstream, and you may have to be moving your indicator and 
doing all, you know, because of the depth changes. So um, at Pyramid, it's pretty, you're in a spot, you get it set up right, then you don't have to do anything. Before you mentioned the Truckee River is the, the river that, that takes the water out of Lake Tahoe, comes down through the Truckee Meadows, through the city of Reno, out through the Eastern Canyon or the I Interstate 80 Canyon, and then down through, you know, Wadsworth and Nixon, Nevada on the reservation into Pyramid Lake. Explain the, explain the Truckee right before Tahoe. And then where, is that a good fishing water? Is the Truckee a good fishing water? And then there's also the Little Truckee, right? Sure. The Truckee is, um, yeah, is a, is a really good stream. It's it's difficult because it doesn't, you know, like the big name streams in the western United States, it doesn't have thousands of fish per mile like the Green River or the Bighorn or whatever. Um, but it has plenty of fish per mile. And it's um, uh, from, the, from Lake Tahoe down to the town of Truckee, is you know kind of one stretch of it that is um, it's fairly good fishing up there um you know i think from Truckee down to reno is is certainly encompasses the best fishing and that's 40 some you know 40 miles of river anyway um, which is plenty of water to get everybody out on and get them spread out and then once you get from reno going downstream um, there's been a huge restoration effort on the river the 20 miles downstream of reno by the nature conservancy and partnered with the Department of Wildlife and local businesses and whatever, but they've they've made a huge impact. I mean, in the '80s and early '90s, when I was when I had the fly shop, um, when I first had the fly shop, no one fished down there ever, ever, ever. I mean, it was just you know it was trash, it was crappy water quality, all this stuff, and it has been cleaned up. The trout habitat has been restored. The river's much cleaner down there now too, and uh, and it's a it's a it's a growing fishery, you know. Um, the one drought downside to the river below Reno is that when we do have drought conditions, the river is pretty flat down there, and it warms up really fast when that water gets low. So we lost a, most of the fish population there two years ago when we had the worst part of the drought, but it'll come back, you know. And on a big water year like last year and then this March that we had, the Truckee's almost out of its banks in some yeah. places. It does that make for tough fishing with the quality of water and the mugginess? And so it can hurt you with that much water. Too. Sure. Oh yeah. And, but you know, at some point in June or July, the water's going to go down. There's not an endless supply of it up there, right? They're going to get the reservoirs to the point where they go, okay, this is what we're going to save for next year. And I mean, they don't turn it off, but they, they lower the flow considerably at that point. But yeah, this time of year, um, you know, there's the fishing is better the farther up you go because the water's clearer. Um, you know, as, as you get farther and farther down the Truckee River Canyon and more and more streams flow in, and particularly now, days like today, it's going to be 70 and all the snow's melting, you know, and that just comes in, you know, without any control at all. The river gets pretty muddy down here in Reno, whereas in Truckee, it may still be really nice and not clear, but, you know, that beautiful green tint it gets this time of year, and that's what you want for fishing. Is right now the right time to book a trip with you, you know, Truckee River Outfitters? And, and you, you, I've been on the, you know, floating the river in that part, you know, from Truckee down to the city of Reno. Would you tell a guy that called you right now, let's wait a little bit, or would you take him right now? Uh, I'd say let's wait a little bit. Myself, personally, for the kind of fishing I like to do, um, the guys that I guide with are, are doing well up on the upper river, up around the town of Truckee right now. Um, you know, they're... They, you're when you get big water the fish are just like people they don't want to be out there in that super fast current so they move towards the banks and uh so they're where you can get to them it just takes you know a little 
little stealth and uh, some persistence, but the fishing's pretty good now. I, I, I typically enjoy June, uh, late May, June, and July are my favorite times to fish the river. Just and, and then again in October, but now I'm in Canada in October, so I don't get to do that too much. <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> With my little, you know, time being around a fly rod, and I love it. I mean, and the reason I love it is because, and you taught me this a while ago, and I've heard other people talk about it, is that it truly is hunting a fish. It's not like going to a little body of water and throwing a worm out there, some power bait and just wait, hoping that something swims by and right. it gets its attention. I mean, you're talk to me about what matching the hatch means. Cause I, I, to me, that's the coolest term in like hunting and fishing is like you go out there and you see the, 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 the hatch comes off of bugs. Talk to me like it. Let's just use our body of water here locally. The, the, the trucky, I know other ones vary, but what are those bugs and what are you trying to match? So when you see them, uh, you know, the bugs are, as you say, they're hatching, they're coming off, the fish are rising, eating them, whatever. Um, uh, in the Truckee, most times they're going to be caddisflies, which is a type of aquatic insect that, you know, we have a lot of in the Sierra. Uh, they may be, they may be stoneflies, they may be mayflies, but, but what you're doing as far as matching the hatch goes is, you know, you catch the bugs, look at them. And, and I think in, in order, if I catch a bug, if I go to someplace I've never fished before and the bugs are hatching. You know, I catch a couple bugs, look at them. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the things I'm looking at when I look in my fly box to match them. I'm looking at the size and the silhouette is the most important thing. Color being way farther down the road than that. Okay. And then you got to look at how the bugs are on the water. If they're just floating completely dead drift at the mercy of the current, or if they're running across the water or whatever, you got to, you got to imitate the bug like the fish wants to see it, right. Or is used to seeing it. So you do that. Um, it, there's lots of times you'll go up to water where the fish aren't, you know, or the bugs aren't hatching and the fish aren't actively rising. So you can't see where the fish are. Then, you know, you flip over a few rocks, look at the bugs under there, kind of get an idea of which ones are most uh, populous, you know, in that part of the stream. And then again, look in your box and silhouette, size, color, you know, and then get the fly down, you know, to the, if, in that case, you need to get those nymphs, you know, right on or near the bottom to, to catch fish on them. So, two-part question you look in your fly box and you don't have one would you back i mean still to this day or i know it, there was a time when you'd go home that night and put your little your little glasses on and turn the light on and start tying right and that's yeah. what you were doing you were matching the hatch and then you'd be like this is what i need you envision it and then what happens like you go and get feathers off of wild animals you buy mm -hmm. them how does that work yeah and, and you know obviously over the years i have a stash of that stuff but uh you know easily my favorite my favorite fly tying materials are the ones I've collected, you know, in the wild, whether they be wood duck flank feathers, which are a really cool fly tying material, uh, or Hungarian partridge skins or whatever. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of fur and feathers I get to use from animals that I had a great time harvesting. So I get to use them again, you know. Have you ever tied an uh, elk hair caddis with one of the elk you've harvested? Oh, sure. Yeah. And what part of the, is there a certain part of that? Is it up by the mane or is it in his, his throat or what's the best part of that elk hide to use? Typically it's along the back, you know, where you would put a saddle on it if it was that kind of animal, right? Because that's the longest hair, the most exposed part of their body. And um, so, uh, and it has, you know, really fine tips that work well for tying dry flies. So yeah, that's where you get it. And the second part of that question, Dave, was what is your definition of a nymph? N-Y-M-P-H is what we're right. saying, right? Yep. What is the definition or your definition of a nymph? It's the subsurface form of an insect, you know, 
that that's really what it is. Um, uh, all these aquatic insects, you know, they start out as an egg, and the egg hatches, and they, they hatch into little nymphs. Uh, uh, or not all the aquatic insects, but the ones that have actual nymphs. Um, you know, they, they hatch into a nymph. They're microscopic, and they grow to, some of them grow to two or three inches long before they hatch. And, um and others go through a different kind of metamorphosis. You know, they, they're actually larva and pupa and that kind of thing. But, you know, basically it's the subsurface form of aquatic insects. So a custo- I, I walk in as a customer to your shop and you're standing there. Can I help you? Are the two things that I ask for typically are a nymph or a dry fly? Or how does that – is the opposite of a nymph when it comes to fly fishing considered a dry fly? Yeah, I think in most people's experience, that's true, right? Okay. You're either going to fish with the subsurface form of that bug or the floating form of that bug. And and then there's other things like crayfish, like little fish, you know, minnows, that you can imitate with flies. And, I mean, you can imitate grasshoppers, whatever. They're not non-aquatic insects, obviously, ants and grasshoppers and beetles and things like that. But, but yeah, typically most people's experience of fly fishing is you're either nymph fishing or you're dry fly fishing. And if you're nymph fishing and you have it that you're down on the on the the waters, the you know the rocks and the rock right. beds and how uh-huh. the stream flows, is that fish biting it because he's hungry? He's pissed off. Is he feeling vibrations? Is he seeing it? Or how does a trout in a river system like the truck, you're the bighorn or the green or mm-hmm. wherever or the Deschutes in Oregon? What are why are they biting that fly? It's a visual thing. You know, they're down. Let's say you're nymph fishing right along the bottom, and the fish are laying on the bottom, which they do for long periods of the day, particularly when the sun's up high, you know, they don't want to be up in the water column where the sun's on them and thereby the birds and other things can, um, you know, attack them. Um, but the fish are laying on the bottom. They see stuff float by all the time. Um, if you, I've checked many a stomach samples of trout to see what they do eat. And, um, you know, you'll find little twigs, you'll find little pieces of leaves, you'll find chunks of moss, along with all of the bugs in there. And so it, whatever it was about that thing as it was drifting by, it made that fish think, yep, that's the real deal, and they go and eat it. And their, their mouth is like our hands, you know, where we reach out and grab a hamburger that's floating by and eat it. You know, they grab it with their mouth, they realize it's not what they thought it was, and they spit it out way faster than it just took me to say that, too. You know, they suck that fly in there, and boom, back out it goes. Um, you know, so that's why you, nymph fishing is a... Is a a tough skill to learn because you can't see it all happening. It's happening, and then you see the effects of it, and you have to react to the effects before, you know, the fish. So your your reflex has got to be dead on. I mean, if if, yeah. he, if he puts it in his mouth and yeah. and, he, and he and you're saying he can spit it out that fast, you got to be on your A game, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, occasionally they'll just hook themselves because it's in fast water or whatever. But but yeah, if you want to be good at it, you got to be fast. Is yeah. catch and release the best thing that's ever happened in the in, in your mind as a the fishing population of the country? I know that people want to fish, and we sure. catch fish, and we eat fish. Yeah. But when it comes to streams like the Truckee, like the, it seems like the catch and release mentality and ideology has has created these fisheries now that they're not just rivers anymore. They're actual fisheries. Is, right. Is the catch and release program or ideology a big part of that? It is, and, and it's not, um, uh, you know, it, it's not for everywhere. Um there's parts of the Truckee River that get stocked with thousands of fish each year, you know, during the summertime for all of those thousands of license holders to go out and catch fish and have a good experience. And that's fine. I mean, those are the fish you want to you want to take. You know, you want to keep those fish um, if, if you're of the mind to keep fish. If you go up in the canyon on the let's use the Truckee for the example, in the canyon between here and Truckee, 
um, the river hasn't been stocked there forever, you know, in a long, long, long time. I mean, longer than the 40 years I've lived here, okay? And so you're dealing with a self-sustaining population of fish, you know, it's a good idea to turn them loose, you know? <laughs> and it was really easy for us. I mean, in the fly fishing business, I had the shop for 30 years and, and, and I still run my guide service that, that, you know, was originally started with the shop. You know, they're, they're my business partners, man. I don't want to be killing those things. I want to come catch them again tomorrow with you. you right. Know? So that, that's the way I look at it. But there are certainly um, places and times when keeping fishes doesn't harm the, you know, doesn't harm the fish population, and, and it's perfectly okay to do that, you know. What is the percentage of the fly fishermen that you know in your career that believe in the catch and release as the mainstay of their, of their fishing day? I think, you know, when people get into fly fishing, that just becomes a part of it. Now, fly fishermen can be too militant about the catch and release thing, too. You know, you got to remember, we were all kids with a red and white bobber at one point. You know, you, you can't, you can get saved and born again, but the reality is we all started fishing the same way. You know, so um, it's most fly fishermen practice catch and release in some place or another during their career as a fly fisherman. A lot of places you have to now. You know, I mean, there's no choice. It's a no-kill river. So when you fish there, you have to let all the fish go. And you fish with barbless hooks and, you know, you, you, you know, use a net and do the things responsibly to let a fish go so you don't, you know, damage it while you're, while you're borrowing it for a few minutes having fun. You know, you want to you let it go in as good a shape as you caught it in. And then fishing for you doesn't end there. You got freshwater bodies and lakes like pyramid you got the Truckee river system i know you fish bighorn and all over montana wyoming oregon idaho west united states as well as you know there's people don't know this but and i don't know it from experience but i've heard that there's several river systems in the state of arkansas that are trout you know trophy trout destinations right there are the white and the little red are phenomenal trout fisheries man-made too what kind of trout rainbow uh rainbow and brown trout both the largest i think the world record brown trout was just beaten, but it was caught on the Little Red and you know, I don't know, 20 years. For 20 years, it was the largest one caught in the U.S., which was, or I guess in the world. Um, it was 42 or 3 pounds, and I think a river in Michigan, they caught one a little bigger than that not too long ago, three or four years ago. But yeah, they're huge fish down there. And it doesn't stop there for you either. Now we go into saltwater fly fishing. You've been all over southern Mexico, Florida, Bahamas, like... You, you fished everywhere. Is there is that a completely different style of fly fishing and yeah. application? Yeah, and and most of that, except for the blue water stuff, which is um, different in itself. But the the shallow water flats fishing that you do, saltwater fishing is it's it's hunting and fishing combined. I mean, you're not you're not just hucking a fly out there and stripping it back and hoping a fish encounters it. Right, you're actually cruising either pulling along the flats in a boat or wading the flats, looking for the fish. You spot the fish, then you cast to them. And, and it's kind of the ultimate, you know, combination of hunting and fishing for a guy like me who likes to do both, you know, and I can let the fish go, you know, so. Is that a tarpon? Um, bonefish, tarpon, permit, all, all kinds. Is of tarpon stuff. the hardest fish in the world to catch on a fly rod? I don't know. It's not the hardest. It's, it might be the most fun. Actually, 10 days from now, I'm going to take Katie for the first time. She's never been tarpon fishing. We're going to the Keys and, uh. She's going to fish with me for a few days, and then her brother, John David, is going to come down, and she's going to come back home and go to work, and we're going to fish for a few more days. Neither one of them have been able to do it. Tom, well, can you go check the mailbox to see if our invitations are in there? <laughs> I'm sure they for, are. For the Florida yeah. deal. 
So, but so, so we're going to go do that. And uh, it's fun to do it as a family, obviously, and to get to see them do it for the first time. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a completely different deal than freshwater fishing, partially because of the size and the strength of the fish, more the strength than anything. I mean, uh, a little three or four pound bone fish could drag a 10 pound trout around backwards all day long. I mean, they're, they're, they just live in a more, um, you know, it's a survival of the fittest environment and they got to be fast to survive. <laughs> I've heard that sometimes like casting can be hundred, 120 feet for, for tarp. I mean, is that common or can you, no, is, it's, it's not. not, um, you, you know, most of the fish you're going to catch flats fishing, you're going to catch 30, well, 20 to 50 feet from the boat, which, you know, you can, I've taught a lot of people to fly cast over the years and you can get a guy casting 50 feet of line pretty easily, you know, now then you get add wind to that and, you know, they're excited and all that and things, you know, the wheels fall off every now and then, but, uh, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a deal where, you know, the top 2% of the casters in the world can do it well. And then everybody else just struggles at it. That's not, you know, that's not the deal. You can definitely get close enough that the average guy can catch them. Average guy with the right equipment, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but but in saltwater, one of the cool things about saltwater, particularly saltwater destinations in the United States, is these guides have figured it out that most of the people they're taking fishing are trout fishermen. So they don't have the gear, right? You know, so they got to go out and spend all this money to go on a three-day trip or a week-long trip. Well, in in the U.S. in particular, most of the guides provide the equipment now. I mean, if you have your own, take your own, you know, because you're used to using your stuff. But if you don't have that and, and don't want to necessarily make the investment in it, you know, almost every saltwater destination I can think of, the guides provide the gear if you want it. So in Florida, where you're going to the Keys, three questions in the three bodies of water we talked about so far. What weight rod are you going to hand me in the Keys for a tarpon or a bonefish? Tarpon? It's going to be on the high end of the scale. It's going to be a 10 or an 11 weight there in the Keys. Um, bonefish, 8 or 9 weight. Pyramid yes. Lake? Pyramid Lake, I use a 6 weight most of the time, but 7 weight's probably a more common rod to be used out there. In a river system like the Truckee? 4s and 5 weights. You know. And what is a what is a average fish that you're going to catch in the, in a, in a with a four and a five pound rod, you're looking to catch a, tw- a two foot, two, 24 inch trout in the river, most of them 18 inches. What do you, what can you expect when you go on a day on the a river? A four like or that? five weight rod. Yeah. Um, the average fish on the truckee are going to be somewhere between 11 and 14 inches. Um, uh, since the drought, the effects of the severe drought we had uh, two, three, and four years ago, you catch a few more smaller fish now because they're, they make up a bigger percentage of the population because we lost some fish for sure in the river, but the fishing is coming back well. And typically the average fish you're going to catch in the truck, you're going to be somewhere 11 to 14 inches. And then there's fish, you know, it's not uncommon to catch them up to 18 inches. And then they're there way bigger than that. I mean, the biggest fish I've ever seen in the river caught in the river was like 15 and a half pounds so you see a picture up there i do <clears throat> that was a big one is that spark of memory <laughs> it does we were floating the river together and at the time that was the biggest fish i'd ever had a customer or a friend whatever uh that was the biggest fish i'd ever had uh customer land and it's a big it's a picture for those of you obviously you can't see it it's a big rainbow trout that um chad caught on uh floating the Truckee river with me one day and it's probably 27 inches long or something big huge fish i still talk mad smack to wade who was with us because <laughs> he just couldn't believe it <laughs> so the the what we started with was you know obviously the fly fishing just pick 
tomorrow's your last day to ever get to cast a fly rod. Where is it going to be? It's going to be, I'm going to be by myself. It's going to be someplace really beautiful, like a little spring creek, you know, outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or uh, there's a couple of places up in the Sierra I would do it. But it would be, you know, I would I would want it to be beautiful more than anything. That would be more important than however good or bad the fishing was, you know. Um, yeah, that would be it for me. And transitioning into, you know, the other, you know, other huge aspect of your outdoor life, is there fishing in the still water? Don't you guys fly fish for carp out there sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Is that, a, is that the same kind of approach as like pyramid would be on that, on that body of water like that? Is or is that more visual? You spot them it's, and cast it's them? It's exactly what you do fish in the saltwater flats. Cause you're looking for the fish. You can't just blind cast in that murky, you know, nasty water that's out there in the duck marsh. So you have to go find the fish and then, you know, you're casting fairly small flies, trying to get them in as close to them as you can because the water is murky and, um, you know, that fly's got to be close to that fish and carp are hypersensitive, um, much harder to catch than trout, in my opinion, um, but way fun to catch. And they're, and they're also quite a bit bigger than your average trout. I mean, it's in the lower Truckee and, and um, the lower Carson River and Stillwater Marsh. I mean, it's not uncommon to catch a 15 or 20-pound trout on a fly rod, so... Or you mean a carp? Uh, I mean carp. Sorry. Yeah. What is not what? Trout. What what is the purpose of a carp? They're they're um, well. First of all, they're non-native to North America. <laughs> they were brought here to clean up vegetation in ponds, or you know, um, that was mainly what they were brought here for. And um, they they serve a purpose. I mean, they they're they're part of the aquatic environment. Is the bottom. You know, they're hoovering up stuff on the bottom. That's where they eat, you know, where they feed most of the time. And, and uh, so because of that, when we fish for them, we catch them with crayfish in the Truckee River because they eat a lot of crayfish. Um, we catch them with crayfish patterns and, and then, you know, nymphs, small nymphs. That Are they down. bad for a trout population? Anything is bad in too big a numbers. Like in the lower river, no, they're not. There's a lot of them down there, but but there's a lot of river, you know, and so the, the trout and the carp coexist. I've seen places where there were too many carp. Um, out at the Duck Club's a great example, you know. The, those, the carp get out there, and after you've had two or three or four or five good years of water, they muddy up the water so bad that it um, it's difficult for other fish to compete survive you know to feed and do all the things they need to do and it's uh it's tough on the ducks too because that muddy water doesn't grow nearly the amount of food that a little bit clearer water grows so you know in in moderation they're good but yeah you don't want too many of them so they're kind of the wild horse of the fishery yeah exactly that's funny how that tied in yeah but you heard me say the word and it is one word still water uh-huh still water national wildlife refuge and it's at the, the Stillwater Basin, correct? The Stillwater Mountain Range. Mm-hmm. What is it? Is it an oasis? What is it? Because it's like desert, 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 and then all of a sudden, beautiful duck country. Talk to me a little bit because you've been out there sure. for years, and then we'll go more into what you what you do out there with the club and your your you know your association with that part of the country. But what is Stillwater? Stillwater. Well, it's the first place I had duck hunted when I moved to Nevada, and because it was people told me, yeah, there's this wildlife refuge out there. You got to go check it out. So I did. It is the, at the end of, it's at the natural end of the Carson River. Um, so this, 
the Stillwater Marsh or the Carson Sink, as it's you know also known, is the river flows out there, and you know it fills up in the winter and spring and evaporates down in the summer and fall, much the same as Pyramid Lake we were talking about earlier, except it's a whole lot shallower. You know, Pyramid Lake's 380 feet deep. The Stillwater Marsh is four feet deep. So, um, uh, but but anyway, that water flows out there. Tulies, bulrush, all that stuff grow. Um, sago, smartweed, and a you know, dozen other different kinds of um, waterfowl feed um, are, are out there and present uh, when we have water. Um, phenomenal shorebird population this time of year and in the fall too. It's just a it's a major migratory um, stopover for shorebirds as well as waterfowl. Um, the marsh itself, the the refuge itself, I should say, the refuge started in 1948. The duck club that I belong to um, started in the 1920s. So it predated the refuge by 25 years at least. And people were hunting there since the turn of that century, in the 1890s and 1900s. Um, anyway, the, the, um, the refuge over the years after it started in 1948 has bought all of the land around the club. So the club's an island in the middle of the refuge now. And a great deal of the refuge is public hunting. It's not like it's all closed or anything. There's a closed zone that has about 5,000 acres of wetlands in it, and then depending on the water year, the um, the open area may have, you know, it may have 1,000 acres of water. It may have 15,000 acres of water, like last year would have been an example on the higher end for sure, and this year will be too, I believe. Um, and so it's this big, huge area. It's not run like the refuges. A lot of the refuges, certainly in California and places where closer to bigger population centers, you can go out there anytime during the waterfowl season, go hunting. There's no check-in, no check-out. Um, you know, they don't limit the number of hunters. Uh, and, and that's usually doesn't matter because there aren't that many. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really unique marsh in that where you'll sit over here on the edge in the tule ponds and stuff and shoot cinnamon teal and green wing teal and gadwall and widgeon and mallards and pintails and, you know, all the ducks that, you know, people who hunt puddle ducks grow up shooting. And then, you know, right outside of those tulies in a big open sheet water, there'll be canvasbacks and redheads and um, scop and ringnecks and whatever. And so there's a great, um, you know, diversity of of uh, waterfowl there um we're lucky enough to be able to nevada is one of the three states in the west where you can hunt swans um you know we can we can buy permits for two of them a year now and uh um, that's a huge opportunity and a really fun thing to do you and i've done that together uh, a number of times and any, uh, any idea how many come come to that part of the still waters do they come from Utah? Do they leave the, the Salt Lake? Is that their first stop after? The Bear River, Bear yeah, which River. is just above the Salt Lake, yeah. Um, and, and they come from, they, they almost all of them, when you, when you see the migratory corridors of these things, and they've radio collared them, we've done that, we've helped them do that at the club for a number of years, uh, put the first radio collars they put on swans in the West um, there. And what they found was, there's a there's something about freeze out Lake Montana that swans. I mean, almost all of the swans that come here go through there. There's some that come right down the Pacific Coast and into California, which don't actually come here. But most of ours, they go to freeze out Lake Montana. They go to the Bear River, which is at the north end of the Great Salt Lake, and then they come to the Stillwater Marsh, and then they go over to what we know is, you know, Marysville, Sacramento Valley, that area, um, where you know they spend the, the rest of the winter. 
why can you not hunt them there? Because when I drive through that, where you just said Marysville and up towards mm-hmm. like, you know, all, all over Gridley and all the rice checks are just, you can walk across them. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a social issue in California that they feel like, um, pushing for a swan hunt is, is probably going to create more problems than, than, you know, than good. Um, although I did hear that a, a group of hunters were gonna, were going to, um, petition the Department of Wildlife in, in California to, to instigate a swan season because the, I believe the feds are, are totally in favor of it. You know, I mean, there's a population there, it's huge and it's huntable on a restricted basis. And, and, uh, so anyway, but there it's, it's a, it's a unique thing. And, and oddly enough, where I come from in Virginia, Virginia and North Carolina is the other place you can hunt swans in the, in the country. And, and, uh, um, you know, there's really good hunting in North Carolina, some marginal hunting in Virginia. But um, Are they tundra swans over there, too? Yeah, yeah, both are tundras. Uh, Nevada, we can only hunt them in three counties because the eastern part of the state, we do have trumpeter swans that migrate through in some numbers. And so, you know, you don't want to be intentionally shooting trumpeter swans. Um, we, we, there have been a few killed over the 30-some years that um, uh, the swan season's been here. But it's, a, uh, you know statistically an incredibly small number of the total swans harvested so as many times as you've made that drive out there through you know leaving reno through the town of fallon and you hit stillwater road and you're headed to what you know you're you've mentioned the duck club the canvasback gun club is the feeling the same still kid in a candy store christmas eve getting ready for to open up presents with your family more and does it still do it for you it does it's funny i uh I was I went out there the other day and this is we're doing this in April now so you know obviously hunting season's long gone and I hit that gravel road and my dog starts whining that's that's her you know I mean she can obviously smell it and everything you know but she knows then we're, where we're going then and and I'm the same way you know it's just like yeah this is great this is where I want to be hanging out you know and and uh, you know that's 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 passion you know you you have it. And, I have it and lots of people have it and, and it's uh it's what you live for, you know. And with that passion, I mean just when you make that left turn off of the dirt road and you see the green sign it says Stillwater Farms and you got the corrals there, that's when you know, getting into hunting in the late nineteen nineties into waterfowl hunting, um, and meeting you and John David, I, I got to go out to the public area a little bit and then I got was lucky enough to get invited to you and that place is just different. I mean, I, with what I do now, I get to travel all across the, you know, Canada and America and different countries and visit a lot of different duck hunting destinations per se. And sure. as far as a gun club goes, there's not a lot of them. Like you can go, there's, there's gun clubs and, and, and high dollar clubs and the Butte sink has a lot of cool gun clubs, but the canvas back is like, it's more of a community, like a little town, right? It's a little city and it's, it's got, you know, it's got the, the meeting hall and it's got the feed hall and it's got all these different houses and trailers. And some of them are real nice. And some of them are, have been there since when, 1930, 1930. Yeah. So, and then the road signs, Spoonbill Lane and Mallard and, and, and then you have the dog cemetery and the pet cemetery. Um, yeah. that place is just, I mean, you've seen it evolve. Is it, is it a community out there? I mean, are you guys, of, I mean, I know that you know most of the members. How many members are there? What does it take to be a member, and, and what is the community like? There's about 115 members, which sounds like a lot, but um, there's 115 members probably in the club right now, and uh, um, we have a little over 6,000 acres that we own, like 10 square miles, 6,400 acres. Um, 
a little bit less than half of that's wetlands. And um, so we've got a big play area there. You know, it's, uh, um, it's a phenomenal marsh and a phenomenal group of guys. Um, the, the, the sense of family out there is, is, is big. You know, they're, they're fun people. I mean, you look forward to seeing them every Saturday morning when you get up two hours before shooting time to draw your pill and then draw your blind and, and, uh, go out hunting. And, and it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, like I say, it's a great group of people and, and we're so lucky to have a place like that. That's this close to where we live. I mean, it takes me an hour and 30 minutes to get there from my house. You know, is it, is it duck and goose hunting? Yeah. You know, but still water, has okay goose hunting it can be phenomenal at times but but we just don't have the large numbers of birds that are going to stay and and come through it's the birds that come there stay but that's part of the problem is they get used to the program and then they're very hard to hunt unless you get the right weather you know whereas if you hunt geese in other parts of the country like you know, i know you've hunted a bunch in kansas and uh, north texas places like that you know you have new birds coming uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, migra- a major migratory corridor. The eastern sl- side of the Sierra isn't. We get probably, in a good year, 250 or 300,000 ducks that come through and, you know, uh, way less than that. I mean, ten or 15,000 geese, something like that. Canada's? Uh, yeah, mostly Canada's. We, we see, as most of the West does now, you see more and more speckle bellies. Um, there's still not a huge population or anything, but um, but we do see some now, and then... Ross's geese hang out with the Canadas for whatever reason. It's kind of weird. And then in the spring, the snow goose hunting, um, now that we have a spring season, um, while we don't see them in those numbers going through in the fall, for whatever reason, when the snow geese pile up and come back, start heading back north, a lot of them end up in the Fallon area just because I don't know why. That's what, what they do. And as the president, you know, you, you, you lead a board and you have – things that you vote on and there's work days and there's kids camps and green wing days. And there's so much stuff that's happened at the club. You you're favored, right? You get to hunt wherever you want every day of the <laughs> club. That's not how it works. right? You, first no. of all, you hunt Wednesday, Saturday, Sundays and some holidays, correct? Just one holiday now. Yeah. So Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday and new year's day, new year's day. That's what yep. it is now. Uh-huh. You wake up in the morning and there's a certain time that every member has to be at the city hall right. to do what you call the draw. And you've already mentioned the pill. So you get up there and you spin the barrel, and then what happens? You, 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 every guy gets in a line and picks a pill. Everybody walks through, grabs their pill, and there's numbers on the pill, and you just start at number one. And, you know, there may be some numbers that get skipped or whatever, but you just go down, you know, from one down to however many you put in there for the people there. And uh, when your number gets called, you go up and hang your tag. You have a little plastic tag with your name on it. And, and we have a, an old – this map of the marsh was drawn in – like 1960 something which is cool because it's completely backwards to how it actually lays on the club but we've all gotten used to it and uh you you, we have little cup hooks up there and you just hang your tag you know uh on the morning or the afternoon for whatever blind you want to hunt and we found out about 20 years ago that our blinds would go twice as far if we had a.m and p.m hunting so um you know then you have the chance once you hunt in the morning to come back and take your tag and put it on another spot you know for the afternoon hunt if you want to and and at our club you can own one or two shares um and a a number of guys own two shares and so they have two draws you know i mean they pay twice as much so why not and then we also have the ability to if if a hunter if a member knows he's not going to hunt that season he can sell his shooting rights and that typically happens inside the club you know from one member to another member so um 
you know, a member who owns one membership can pick up the other guy's shooting rights by paying his dues for the year, and then he can, you know, he gets two draws as well. And if you draw, if you, if I, if you draw number one and I draw number three, nobody draws two. You go up and put it on a blind, and you go out and shoot your limit real fast. Can I go into that blind if I have three? Can I just move over to that blind? Well, you can, but you don't know if that's going to happen. So you've got to hang your tag someplace so that you you know can be out there. And a lot of times when there's an area, you know, the, it's like any place you hunt. There'll be parts of the club early in the season that are much better than they are in the middle of the season where there's other parts of the club that are hot then and other parts that are hot later in the season. So, you know, you, you get a lot of, um, you know, the guys with the really good draws draw the blind where the birds are, and then the guys with the sort of good draws a lot of times will draw the peripheral areas. So, you know, you get some of the spinoff from that. And, uh, and in the odd day, it doesn't happen that frequently, but where a guy goes in there and just, you know, kills his bird so fast, you know, one of the guys from the, you know, blinds close by can certainly move in there and shoot in that blind, you know, until the morning's over. Yeah. Can every, every blind has decoys in them for the members to use, or are you responsible for bringing out your own spread every morning? How's that work? We have both. Um, we have a few blinds that are long walks that there's no boat trail or anything to get to that we have started. You know, we'll, we'll put a tank blind in spots like that, assuming that it's not a Thule marsh, which it isn't, they aren't typically, um, we'll have a tank blind, and so we'll put a couple dozen decoys in there so a guy doesn't have to, you know. So a 70-year-old guy can walk into that blind and hunt it just like the 30-year-old guy can, you know. He doesn't have to haul all that stuff on his back. Um, there's a few blinds like that. We have probably a third of our blinds are tank blinds, a third of them are stand-up wood blinds, and a third of them are areas that have no blind because people like to hunt out of layout boats or like to build their own little blinds or, you know, do whatever they do, sit in the toolies on a toolie stool. So we try to provide that opportunity for all the, the three ways people like to hunt. And uh, everybody uses spinning wings and mojos, or are they legal, or what, what's the rule? We don't. We, we don't use them. We don't allow them on the club until December. Um, and from December to the end of the year, we, we do allow them. The reason we don't allow them earlier is because we all hunt in such close proximity to each other. Early in the season is when we get the most use of the club, right? And we, we hunt in close proximity. So if the spinning wings are working, that's great. If they're not, then, you know, you're sitting over there with three of them going in your draw, and I'm in the draw next to you, and it's spooking all the birds. Well, it's affecting my hunt too, you know. It isn't so much that you're killing all the birds, because once you get your ducks, it doesn't matter how you get them, I mean, within – you know, it has to be legal, you know, you're done, you're out of there. Right. So right. that's, that's not an issue that one guy kills more birds than the other. It's that those spinners and the use of them can affect the people around you negatively. If, you know, if the birds are, have seen that and, and we do get in a, you, you've hunted with me enough out there and, and on your own enough out there in the Stillwater Marsh. If, if we don't have a weather system or a big weather event North of us for two or three weeks, you know, our ducks get really stale. Because there's not that, you know, we're not looking at hundreds of thousands of them there at a time. It's more like 80,000 of them. That's good, you know. So those guys can all go through the, the spin cycle pretty quick, and then they get pretty wise to the whole deal. So, you know. So as part of the club, you have, you said you're an island right in the middle of this refuge. Well, that refuge isn't, man, as far as farming practices and agriculture and farming for wildlife 
are you doing that at the club? Is there a farming system out there? Are you growing food? Are you, what, how does that work in the state of Nevada? And, and talk about, you know, you got John out there who he's been out there since he was 17, since he was 17 and he's 60 now. Yeah. He and I are the same age. Yeah. And he's been working at the club since he's been our manager for 43 years. Yeah. Wow. And he's the ranch foreman, ranch manager, manager. Uh And so right now, this time of year right now, is that club being drained and and what's going on right now? Sure. So this time of year, first of all, let me touch on that subject of John Carrington is his name. He's our ranch foreman. And like I said, he came to work there when he was 17 and that was 43 years ago. So, um, he is, he is acknowledged by the biologists, by people who know, you know, ducks and everything. I mean, that guy is a magician with moving water in the desert and making making it duck habitat. I mean, he's seen it all so many times. And, you know, the stuff that goes around in his brain amazes me to this day when I drive around the club with him and the ideas and stuff he comes up with. It's, it's incredible to have that resource. So the Canvasback Club is as good as it is in great part because of the longevity of that relationship, um, that the same guy has been um, trying to create new and different duck habitat, you know, and has seen the effects of whether you add a foot of water or only four inches of water or whatever you do, you know, whatever the differences, the variances are. And, and he's very good about keeping track of all of that stuff in his mind. And, and he knows how to reproduce it, which is great. So we do farm out there, to answer your question directly. There's a little farming around us. Most of the farming at that end of the valley is alfalfa farming. So other than, you know, for geese to go into and graze in the wintertime, there's not a lot of grain um, out at the end of the valley we're at. You get closer to the town of Fallon, there's a lot of corn grown these days, and, and that has become a popular pastime in December and January when the mallards get in the cornfields. It's, it's pretty unique. Um, and fun. Especially for Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just doesn't happen in Nevada. And so uh, the farming we do, most of our fields are 20 to 40 acres. We don't raise corn as a rule because it's so water intensive. Um, But we raise a lot of millet. Uh, What we try to do um, with uh, 80% of our fields um, is have them on a two-year rotation, which means this September we'll plant a field for winter wheat. So by late October, November, and certainly December, it's green, you know, green carpet looking. Um, and, and the geese typically are looking for that green, um, green grass uh, or green wheat in this case. And so we hunt geese over it for that first year. And then the next spring we irrigate it, um, grow it up, you know, to where we have a harvestable crop and then we don't harvest it. And then we just flood it for ducks the next year. So we get two years out of the same field. Uh, and we have 10 fields we do that with, probably. Um, and then we also plant, uh, we augment the marsh um, where we can. You know, we'll plant millet in it or something like that. The ducks like that. And, and millet is great because it grows up. And if you let it grow tall, you can just raise the water up to where the ducks can get to it. Um, uh, we've had really, really good success with millet over the years. But, you know, over the course of the year, we probably get more duck use on the natural feed that we raise there than anything. You know, you'll certainly see 5,000 mallards go into a field of, of um, wheat when we first flood it. You know, I mean, if they're there, they'll do that. And, and it's pretty cool to see that, um, you know, one shot fired and they're all over on the refuge again. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the farming part of it, uh, the, the farming part that, that a lot of people don't realize is the, you know, the moist soil management we do. Like this time of year, we're, we're draining the ponds, 
slowly letting them evaporate off basically and once they get down to where there's no more water on the surface the the plants that we want to grow like swamp timothy is a huge one for us uh, but smart weed all, all kinds of things um, will start growing and um, and then we might have to put a little water on it later in the year but typically we don't on those moist soil units you know we don't have to flood it until we get to september and we're starting to flood up for the waterfowl season and you're saying that one man is pretty much responsible for that. I mean, he has a Absolutely. couple of work days a year, but he's, this is his vision and he's making it like John could probably go. And is it just desert that he would be beneficial in, or could he go to, Oh no, he, he just, he's just a magician with duck property. Right. He just, um, you know, he, he knows what ducks like. And he, and over the years he's, you know, he knows how to look for those, just those little things that he did different and, and see how the ducks react to it, you know? And, uh, yeah, he could do that anywhere. I mean, that the plants change, and to some degree, the ducks change. You know, the types of ducks. But yeah, once you're once you're a duck doctor like that, man, you got you got the prescription down. Could yeah. you imagine if? And he might. I don't know. And I I love John. He's an awesome dude. His wife's awesome. Could you imagine if you know hindsight's always twenty twenty? They say, but what if he had a photo album or? a video or cam- camera and the people that he's watched grow up on that club, the, oh. the, the talent and the families and the, the, the memories, the dinners. I mean, I've been out there with dinners with you with guys that are cooking. I mean, it's just amazing. The, the camaraderie out there. Yeah. I, I wonder if he does. And could you imagine if he did what he has witnessed out there? Yeah. Not to mention the work he's done in the, in the duck sure. properties produced, but his, his story is amazing, right? It is. And, and I mean, there are, there are members who've been there longer than John and, and John understand he, it's kind of unique. Both of his grandparents were members at the club. So John literally has been there his whole life, you know, from the time he was a little kid and he killed his first duck there and hunted there and learned how to duck hunt there and everything. And then ended up going to work there and has spent his whole um, working career there. So like I said before, we've been really fortunate with that, but um, yeah, the, the things he's seen in the 40 some years that he's, been the ranch manager or in the 60 years of his life are pretty incredible. We have a few other members that have been there about that long too. And when you talk about members, you said that you have equity or two, you can have two shares or you have one, let's say you have one share. You, you go to John, Dave and Katie and they're not interested in it. They're moving out of Nevada. I say, Dave, I want to buy your share. Can you sell it to me right away? Or do you have to get approval by the club? You have to be approved. I don't, you know, obviously I can, I can bring a sale to the club to the membership and then we notice the membership and as long I think they have 20 days to object um, if if they have a real reason it can't be a personal reason but I mean a real reason to object to somebody becoming a member then you know uh, the membership does have the option to to say no but again with good cause um, and then yeah I can sell it to you sure and that comes with your property your cabin it can. I it mean, can. I, it, I've seen situations where they've sold cabin to an existing member and then sold their membership to somebody else. You know, just, that just depends on on how they're working the deal out. But you know, some members share cabins, so when those guys get old and decide to get out, you know, one family ends up with the cabin and the other guy just has a bare membership to sell. So yeah, all all of the above occur from time to time. And if you aren't lucky enough to be a member of the canvas bat club, which I, I, I consider it like just such a great place. And you guys have just made it into a, what well, I call it an oasis because it really is an oasis in the desert. And if you're a duck hunter, and like you said, if you live in Reno and you have the opportunity to have that 90 miles away, you're pretty lucky. Very. 
um, the, the public, I've had some great public land hunts out there with you, swan hunting, canvasback mm-hmm. hunting, mallard hunting, cutting holes in the ice with chainsaws and just, yep. you know, and getting after, I mean, you name it, we've done it out there. That part of Nevada, a lot of people think of Nevada, even Idaho sometimes, like there's no ducks out there. Right. And you've already said that we don't get a ton of them, but we do have, we can have some pretty stellar hunting starting at Fernley and you used to have the Fernley wetlands and i want to be educated coming back they're coming back yep. i want to be educated on this so that whole corridor from you know when you're on i-80 and there's fernley there then you right. cut off from fernley and that takes you over to fallon you got the Greenhead over there you got the carson river you have the canvas back club of stillwater but come you know you come back this way towards the interstate you have jessup you have the humble the Toulon, you have rye patch yeah we mentioned fernley already so at one time that was all wetlands or, and, and, and it went dry with the droughts or civilization and, and, and industrial and communities coming in. What's go, what happened in, in, in our history that broke all that up? Dams, dams, dams on the rivers, you know? And, and I mean, those marshes dried up from time to time, you know, I mean, there were, there were droughts far more severe than anything we've seen, you know, based on, on, um, you know, how they, they read trees and that kind of thing, you know, where the growth slows down and all of that. So we haven't seen the worst of the droughts. We being humans haven't necessarily, but, um, I think the dams on the river and, and, and by necessity, the upstream water users, you know, that water's being pulled out and used for something else that used to just flow freely into those sinks. Um, you know, so that, that the Stillwater Marsh and the Humboldt sink were always combined or close to it, you know, for, for many you know for most of the years they would they would actually meet out there not too far didn't you say at one time john took a boat from the club to humboldt or to the toulon um actually norm sakey did yeah took it from stillwater and went all the way to lovelock on a in an airboat you know right now you'd have to drive 25 miles across dry ground to pull that off really (laughs) in between the two And, and they both have a considerable amount of water in them right now but um that was in the 80s and that was a huge flood and uh, yeah, you could you could do that, but but I, I think the dams on the rivers have have um, you know it's created agriculture for sure, but at the expense of wetlands, which is you know pretty much the case most places. And being out there as long as you have, and 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 seeing the memories that it creates. So obviously, myself, my brothers have been out there. Katie, John, David. When you walk into your cabin, you take a hard left, and you look at your wall, and you don't even have enough room on it anymore to put the pictures on there that you've created out there. What stands out is, I mean, like with your career out there, and you and John being out there for so many years of your life. A lot of your adult life has been spent at the Canvasback Duck Club and the Stillwater Marsh. John, David, and Katie grew up out there. John David still loves being out there. He's still running tractor right to, as we speak right now out there. He is. What stands out? Like, just like there's got to, if, if I came to you and just said, why, why did you do it? I mean, can you look back and say, here's yeah. why? Yeah. Seeing my kids grow up out there. And if you ask them today, the best thing I ever did for them, they would tell you it was that, that, that we belong to the canvas back. Because the, because you killed so many mallards? No. Because that's where they learned how to drive a car. That's where they learned how to drive a boat. That's where they learned how to probably crash a car and sink a boat and <laughs> lots of other things I don't know about, <laughs> which is fine because, you know, out there nobody got hurt. No harm, no foul. But, um, no, it was just 
they got to grow up out there as much or as little as they wanted to, and both of them loved it to the point where it was a lot. I mean, John David, I think, has worked for us almost every part of every summer since he was 16, and he's 33 now, you know. He still comes back. I mean, he lives in Alaska for part of the year and Texas for, for part of the year, and he still comes back in April and May to do the farming at the club because it's part of him, you know. It's a cool Loves thing. It. Yeah. And the the skills that he honed, I mean, it's no secret of what he's a natural born killer. Yeah. Obviously he grew up and his calling skills, his vocalization, what he's done on stage for duck and goose calling competitions. He, he would probably in an interview say that the canvas back is pretty much responsible for that. Yeah, he would, he would for sure. I mean, that's, you know, it's just such a great environment for kids and, and, and a lot of our members, you know, have, make sure their kids spend some time out there and and there's a group of those kids that grew up together with my kids that are you know they'll they'll hunt together their whole lives um you know that they're they're their best friends and and uh that's great to see you know when you talk about what else benefits out there there's a lot of science that happens out there what i mean by that is banding pro you know yep. studies and banding initiatives we had bill henry out there for several years as a biologist Chris Nikolai, who just I mean, talked to him this morning. What what kind of man is Chris Nikolai? What what do you sum him up for me? Because he's kind of like a unicorn, where you you see a picture of a unicorn, and I see a picture of Nikolai, and then he's just like he's just gone. He's like he's he's up here doing this with geese, or over here doing this with cacklers, and I've seen yeah. him down in California working with California Waterfowl Association at, at Bird Haven. And what what kind of man is he? What is he? What he's, do you attribute to him? He is uh, he has a PhD in waterfowl and in, in some portion of waterfowl biology. He's a brilliant guy. He's completely personable. You would never know that unless you got into a serious discussion with him about waterfowl that he's a PhD in it. Um, he has two little girls who have banded more waterfowl probably than most men that have done it for a living. I mean seriously. Um, they have been all over the place with Chris. Uh, it's a family affair. He's a great family man. Um, I hunted with, with Chris and his daughter, Grace, a couple times this uh, fall and, and, I, and have in the past, too. Matter of fact, I saw her shoot her first duck out of the air, too. Um, but, but, you know, just, just a great guy. He's totally excited about, you know, the technology that's out there today. Uh, he called, when we were talking today, he was telling me about the, the collars that they have on these snow geese and yesterday for whatever reason was the day the snow geese took off and went north and oddly enough the farmer that i live with in canada called me yesterday and said hey the snow geese got here today and chris told me the same thing this morning based on the the feedback he got from his collars this morning when he flipped his computer on so you know i mean in exactly the same place too um so you know that's it's cool to see that work like that but uh but he's um He's a treasure, man. We're so lucky to have a guy like that that live, you know, that lives in Nevada. Um, that he, he doesn't work for the Department of Wildlife, but you know, he he has done some work with them, some really important work. The the Fallon Wood Duck Project is a groundbreaking, um, uh, you know, research project on the effects of hunting on a water on a closed waterfowl population like the wood ducks on the Carson River and. Uh, um, guy who helped uh, Chris with that is now getting his PhD I think this week or next week he defends his PhD paper Ben Settinger and uh, and Ben did it on you know based on the, the population population dynamics of a of or the effects on the population of hunting 
um, you know, on a on a closed population of birds. So um, there's gonna there's some great information that has come out of that that has not been known before. Uh, but Chris is, uh, if it has to do with waterfowl, he's interested in it. You know, why why would it why would you stay in Nevada with that background and that that career choice? Well, it's just the, as he says, it's just the job opportunities that open up. You know. And now he's embarking on a career, hopefully, or another part of his career where he's going to be, you know, in charge of banding pretty much in the Western United States. Not of everybody's banding, but he's he's going to do specific banding, um, uh, you know, looking at populations and what they do and where they go. Because now with these new collars that they put on them, it's not like the old ones, you know, with the big thing glued to it and an antenna and everything on it. Everything is contained within the collar now um and as long as they have cell phone coverage you know they they know exactly what that bird did every five minutes or whatever the download time is they can speed it up to every minute so they know exactly what the bird did minute to minute you know really yeah um so it's and and then if they go up way up north to to nest so for four months they're out of cell phone range the second they migrate back into cell phone range all of that data downloads from downloads from the last four months they even have solar panels on the on the collars now so that it recharges the batteries i mean this thing can go forever it's crazy but in i mean evolving is everything and all that does is help us with management absolutely Uh, we're not guessing anymore you know Uh, we can we, we will hopefully be able to determine population dynamics much more accurately so that we're not reacting to them but we're uh, and and, and when I say we, it, specifically as as hunters, you know, we're not reacting to it. We're 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 a, an active part in the management, which is where we need to be. You know, and you know, we've talked about it here before. You and I have had several personal conversations about the heart of a hunter and the work that hunters do and the money that hunters do put into it. And it's, I mean, Chris is a hunter, and and he does he he, he does kill a few birds, but the whole mindset and ideology again of of a man like that, that he's dedicated his life to the birds. You've dedicated your life to the club. John's dedicated his life to land management and, and building that oasis out there. And yeah, there are, let's get to it. I mean, there is hunting on the club. There is sure. hunting in the Stillwater Marsh. We do kill some ducks. You kill, you, you've had some awesome, I mean, I've had awesome hunts out there. You've had sure. tons, you've killed, you're the luckiest band guy that I know. I mean, every, <laughs> it seems like every picture you send me, oh, another banded gadwall. What, why, what, what, does it take to be successful at the club? You hone your skills as a duck hunter. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Do you, what do you specialize in out there? Do you want to be a great caller? Is motion more important with the, you taught me the importance of a jerk rig several years ago. And, and the word still water is there for a reason, right? <laughs> the wind doesn't blow, doesn't blow there very much. So the ripples <laughs> right. are important. So, yeah. I mean, when you hunt out there, you, you got to know what you're doing. It you, just cause it's a duck club. Doesn't mean that everybody goes out there and gets their seven green. That's in. right. No, it doesn't mean that at all. And and honestly, um, a fella told me, and I, I can't remember who it was. It was just a guy I ran across when I first started hunting at Stillwater, and told him I was from Virginia and everything. He goes, "Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a piece of advice." I said, "Okay, sure." He goes, "Get yourself a good pair of binoculars." He goes, "You hunt out here, and and you'd have to experience the Stillwater Marsh to." to understand this but it's a sink so it's flat it's just the bottom it's where the river flows out into and again it fills up in the fall and winter and evaporates down in the spring and summer and and uh um you know so it's flat so you have a great vantage point 
you know, to, to watch things with your binoculars. And, and, and that's true on the club. It's true at Stillwater, whatever. You know, you watch those birds and you watch what they do. And so today I might not be in the right spot, but tomorrow or next Wednesday or next Saturday, you know, whenever the next hunt day is, um, you know, I know why those, I know those birds are going over there and, and I know where they're going. So I'm going to go over there and find out why they're going there. And, and a lot of that, maybe you won't even be in the right spot then, but you'll, you'll go in there and look and you'll go, okay, this is what they're looking for. You know, whether it's the, the solitude and protection created by a little tule pond off in some corner of the club that nobody's bothering them, or they're, they're out on the big sheet water because the sago is just thick as, you know, you can't even wait. Your dog can't get through it. It's so thick. Uh, and, um, you know, so you have to look at those things. Um, and then, and then you can do things to, to improve your, your odds, you know, learning how to call, learning when to call more than anything, you know, and you, you and I've hunted together a lot and we've hunted with the best callers in the world. And, and I don't mean that they could functionally operate a duck call the best. I mean, they knew when to talk and more importantly when to shut up you know um you learn that you learn you know the birds as the season progresses they shy away from the blinds they they get it they figure it out you know those dark spots aren't good so you know even though that blind is really comfortable to sit in and everything you may be better off in your layout boat laying over in the grass over here even though you're hunting the same place right it's just they're going to just give that blind enough birth that that not hunting in it you know, hunting someplace other than the blind, you'll be far more successful. So that, that has a lot to do with it. But the, the scouting and, and not just pre-scouting, but when you're out there, you know, we're, we're glorified bird watchers for 95% of our day. I don't care how good your hunting is. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. You just watch birds, you know, that's what we do. And you and I, you were talked about it early on in this conversation about how we're laying in a field in Canada and we're done shooting. Man, we're not going anywhere. The birds want to be there. We want to watch them come in. You yeah, know? we're starving. Yeah. We're staying. <laughs> yeah, we're staying until it gets dark. Or somebody finally makes us come to our senses, you know. So it's, um, I think the biggest key to where we are, because you can see so far, is is those binoculars and, and, you know, checking out the area around you, not just what you're doing. I grew up hunting in, in you know, in the woods in Virginia. and You can't see anywhere there, you know. I mean, you have to go and walk and kick birds up and figure out what they're doing because you can't see them go in. You know, it's, it's all trees. You, there's no way to see them. So uh, not unlike hunting at the Bi Meet in, in Arkansas, you know, except not nearly as many people around. Uh, but, yeah, so out here, we, we, the, the nice thing is is that you do get to see the birds fly every day. You know there's birds around when there's birds around. There's no doubt about it. And then you just got to figure out what they're doing and get there before they do. Are most of the members, are they pretty – do they hush hush or are they are they pretty forward to share their information like hey man i had a great hunt here if you draw this go there or, you know, or is there a lot of secretive going well, secrets going on there'll, there'll always be some you know secretive nature to some of the duck hunters but honestly it's it's such a a good group of guys out there that there's we realize that's why we have the draw if you get the number one draw i don't want to see you go to a crappy place because you don't know any better I want to see you go get a great hunt. You know, that's what it's about. Everybody's going to get their low draws over the year. So you want to see everybody succeed. And and so I think that's far more pre- prevalent. Plus, now, you know, I mean, we built bird towers. We've done all of these things to make it so that people can come down on Friday afternoon and sit up in the bird tower and watch the birds fly. And 
figure out, oh, okay, that's where they're going, you know. So, so they're, they make better choices. I mean, we want them to be successful, you know. And granted, you want to get your own too, but, but um, there's, there's not a lot of secrets out there now, you know. I mean, occasionally you'll run across one, but no, people are very forthcoming with, with the help. Do you, you, you've been duck hunting for how long now? Well, if you count the first time my dad took me, 57 years. <laughs> how long have you? But, but I've been shooting since I was 10, so 50 years. 50 years of duck hunting in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan of it today? And when I say that, do you like the, the, the product part of it, the evolution of it, the gear part of it? Are you a gear junkie? I know in fly fishing is gear intensified. Yeah. You got to have your, your, your waders and your, in your felt boots and your rod and your reel and you're in duck hunting. There's no secret. It's gear intense. And we spare no dollar when it comes to gear. It seems like, do you like the evolution of decoys, the paint schemes, the feather detail, the texturing, um, the, the, the calls and, and, and where calls have come? It's not just your old big fat looking wood calls. I mean, they've right. gotten so aerodynamic and, and cool looking and paint schemes. And, and that's a little part of it. But as far as a whole, duck hunting gear, every year we come out with what I call apparatuses that we think are going to help us trick those birds or give right. us a better chance. They were killing a lot of ducks back in the day with not this what what's your feeling on that well i i you know i'm not a um i'm not for example a spinning wing decoy you know they have their place and and in my world their place is in those two square mile fields in canada where you need to get the birds close enough to see your decoys so you use a spinner right in a in a marsh environment like in nevada where we hunt not so much. I mean, I never use them there, but that's, that's personal preference. I'm not saying they're wrong. That's just the way I look at it. Okay. Um, gear. Yeah. Coming from a fly fishing, you know, being a fly fishing retailer for 30 years. Yeah. You know, I'm a gear junkie for sure. I mean, if it, if it's, um, but, but I find myself now going more towards the gear, you know, gear you wear, you know, the clothing, the, maybe the backpack you take with you. Um, Shotgun shells, you know, the technology in those is crazy good now compared to what it was. And all you have to do is take a, go buy a box of shells and take an hour and go shoot at a piece of paper and shoot all the different kinds of shells and find out the ones that work the best in your gun. I mean, it isn't rocket science, you know, yeah. but those kind of things can improve your hunting dramatically. I, I think that we can, I hate to see too many things, and I'll use the spinner as an example, too many things that are mechanical getting involved in it because that takes away from your skill or my skill or the next guy's skill. And, and, and not that, not that it should be a skill game, but that's, that's part of why we all enjoy it. You know, you develop some skill at this and you go out and you do it well. And it's, it's just more fun than if you're, you know, it's the difference in duck hunting and duck shooting. You know, you can go to places. You're probably going to one this summer in Argentina, right? Yeah. You're going to go duck shooting down there. Okay, yeah. that's okay. That's what it's that's what it's about. That's an experience. That's a de- you know that's a a deal all unto its own. You know, but but you will continue even after that experience to like duck hunting more because it's got so much more to it. You know, and and I, I think you're talking about the gear and and all of this. Duck hunting is an expensive sport, and that works against us. There are fewer duck hunters now than there were 30 years ago, um, and that's because of that, partially because of that. I think there are two things that, that inhibit duck hunter numbers growing. One is just the cost. 
you know, if you want to be an, a quail hunter, you get yourself a good pair of boots, a shotgun, and a box of shells and go quail hunting. You can put them in your pocket when you shoot them. It does, you know, you don't have to have all of this stuff. Um, so duck hunting is very gear intensive. Um, the other thing that you have with duck hunting that you don't so much have with uh, at least the other types of bird hunting is you have to be able to identify the birds now because all the limits are subject to two hen mallards, one sprig, two canvasbacks, three scoff. That's very, very, you know, that sends up big red flags to people who don't have a clue what a mallard is when it's sitting on the table in front of them, you know. Um, so that's a tough one to overcome. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think about that. I think they should, you know, we have a seven-bird limit in the West, and I love that. I mean, you know, we get a lot of days where we get to shoot seven ducks if we want to. You know, where I grew up in the East Coast now, I think the limit's five or six, depending on where you are. And in Arkansas, it's a little less, but they kill more ducks there than most any place in the country. Um, you know, I think they should just have a splash five limit. You know, if the populations can support it, or a splash four limit, or whatever. And by that, I mean that, you know, you shoot five ducks and you're done. And don't worry about Even it. Even if it's five hidden mallards. You it's biologically to, proven that it's probably not going to affect the, it, the it, population. And right? you talk to, we were talking about Chris Nikolai earlier. He will stand here and tell you, and someday you should do this with him, believe me, um, that that will have no effect on the population. It, it is biologically indefensible. It's sort of like catch and release fishing. We don't know how many of those fish we let go die, right? We know how many of those hen mallards we kill die, every one of them. Um, but but it's it's such a small number in the overall scheme of the population that it's not, um, you know, it, it's not significant according to the people that I listen to, which are people with PhDs or their, a life like Bill Henry spent his whole life, um, you know, as a waterfowl biologist. Um, but at the least, I think on the youth hunts, it should be a splash, whatever, pick a number, four. That's plenty of ducks for a kid who's never shot any ducks or, you know, only had an opportunity once or twice. You know, it's we're, we're setting this up to where it's – or it is set up to where it's, it's very difficult. Think of yourself as a 40-something-year-old man, and tomorrow was the first day you're going to go duck hunting, and this guy's telling you, okay, now, these ones with the green heads and these with the white on the wing patch, and, you know, you're just going, whoa. Yeah, and then there's all the the regulations on top of that. It's like oh. you can use a spinning wing here, but not here. If you own property, you can use it, but next door on the public land, you can't use it. Um, right. You can use it starting this date. Your boat motor has to be this many horsepower. You can't use mud motors. They're trying to ban totally. the, the mud motor on Arkansas WMA. Certain number of shells. Certain number of shells. Size of shells. Yeah. There's a lot of that goes into being a duck hunter that you got to keep straight. And, and, and we have done that to make presumably make the hunting better or make it you know, to where we could do it. And, and I don't mind the restrictive, the restrictive regulations when it comes to, if, if they're restricting my bag limit or something like that, I'm okay with it. I'd way rather give up ducks than give up days. I'd rather have a 107 day season and only shoot three ducks than have a 60 day season and be able to kill 10 a day. Cause we're out there. Exactly. It's not about that. You know, we're out and, there. and you got to get to that point. I remember when I, my answer would have been different to that, you know, when I yeah. was 20 something. But I, the sooner you can in your career, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, is that the sooner you realize that in your hunting career, whatever you yeah. call it, it, might not be a career, but it gets so much better. Yeah. You just start to realize that stacking them up and pile them up. And, but it's those, when you drive out to the still waters and see that sun coming up or going down and being on that bird town or maybe, maybe having a yeah. highball around a campfire, Absolutely. cooking a steak outside of your cabin. 
that's what if if a if a twenty one year old kid. I understand being bloodthirsty and wanting to kill. I get that and taking the pictures. We all did it. Sure. But if they can start learning that at 21, 25, 30 years old and they get past that, that your, your hunt is so much more complete. And that you summed it up perfect right there that 107 day season isn't about killing seven mallards every day. It's about getting to go. Right. And, and now here we are in April and we want to go. Yep. And we would, if it was open, Yeah. but we can't, <laughs> we, would. we can't. We yeah. Can't. No, one, one question I have on that or one concern, and I don't, it's not really concerned, but we love to cook ducks and eat ducks. You and our families, we get together a lot. We do. And cook a lot of ducks. We had duck tacos yesterday at lunch. <laughs> at lunch. They were awesome. They were awesome. You made them. Very uh, good. But you make awesome duck all the time. Mama Dills and, and the recipes you do and what you've taught me with tenderloins and all that. What is a possession limit? You can go out and kill a daily limit. Right. What is a possession limit? It's three times the daily limit. So in the state of Nevada, you have seven ducks. I, where, so in my freezer, legally, I can have 21 ducks. That's correct. On your license. And then if you have another license holder that lives in your house or keeps their ducks here, whatever, I think it's probably by the law they have to live here. But, you know, then that's another 21. And, you know, or however many geese that is and whatever. The, the, where, that, where that gets gray to me is like we can bring back ducks from Canada, and you and I do, you know. Um, or if I go hunt in Idaho and I bring back ducks from Idaho, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a universal, you know, I've never asked. I know question. the daily limit is well, like the daily the, limit doesn't change. Right. Well, but I, mean, I, I mean, I've, I've had opportunities like with Keith Allen and guys around Missouri, Kentucky and sure. Illinois to where you're going to go kill a limit. You can't do it. No, no, you, you can, can't. You can it's, only, it's a daily limit. Daily limit. In that flyway is the way they define it. But yes. But what sense does it make if we're going to eat ducks year round and we go duck hunting every day? And we don't want to eat them the night we kill them, but we know we're going to eat them in April like we did yesterday. Sure. I, I just don't understand the ideology behind, and I know there's reason in scientific data to support it, but I go out and I, and I hunt every day, or let's say I could get to hunt 50 days next year in Nevada. Right. And let's say I kill my limit half of those, 25 times seven. I don't know what that is, but it's about 175 birds, <laughs> yeah. 175 birds. You got to eat a lot of ducks, buddy. <laughs> but you got to eat them in a hurry because you can only have three times in your freezer. I now, does do they what if I get them processed into jerky or into sticks? Does that count if they, I think in the, in the U S that, that takes them off of your, I believe it does because I mean, how can they identify it? They can't, can't it's mixed with pork fat. Right. It's a deal. But if they come in there and I have, I have some vacuum sealed bags and it says Uh Nevada mallards, December 30th, Nevada mallards, January 7th, Nevada mallards, January 10th. Those are the only ducks I can legally have in there. What if I have a California license? Can I have my legal possession limit of California birds in there you know, too? That's a good question, and and I honestly have never asked that question to, uh, you know, to a law to enforcement it. official. And it's a good question to ask him. I'll find out the answer to that though. I and I just want to because know, I've always wondered about it, and then I I just never get around to because you, know, you hunt California. I, I do. Well, what if you have? What if you go for a week states. over there and you bring back your ducks? I, I there's just so much gray area, and you don't want right. to break the law. No. Can, Okay, so I go to California and I kill my I, I kill my greenheads in a couple specks, and I and I leave California. Legally, you have to have a wing attached across that state line and be able, even to take them out of the field or to take them out. There's to travel with waterfowl. I understand all that. All I'm saying is that in my freezer, I just want to be able to have a surplus of wild game for the year. 
I don't want to have to eat them all right then. Right. And if I can oh, only no. have 21 ducks in my freezer at a time, that's, that's one dinner last. for us. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's not going to last very long. No, so I if you if you go out and you hunt and you put and you're good and you're proficient at it and you spend the money, I've just like well. If I hunt 50 days, why can't I have 50 days of ducks in my freezer if, I, if I'm going to eat them? Do they think that most people just let them get freezer burnt and toss them? No. Is it an excess it's, waste problem? It's uh, it's goes back to, if you recall, like, what, five years ago or something, they increased the, the what is it, the possession limit from two days limit to three days limit. Yep. And that's a concession to the fact that market hunting really doesn't occur anymore in any significant form. Um, all of that the limits and everything are ultimately start were started because of, you know, to stop market hunting. Right. And then they started doing it species specific to help manage the species. And, you know, there's, you talk to 10 people about how that's gone and half of them will be on one side of the fence and half on the other. But, but it, it's a throwback from the days when people would shoot them just cause they could. And they, it's, it's, it's a little help to law enforcement to ensure that doesn't happen now. You know, if a guy's going to do that, he's, he's not going to care about it. If he's going to shoot 100 ducks in a weekend, he's not going to care about how many of them are in his freezer. That's going to be the least of his worries, right? Right. You know? Which is a terrible thing to think about. But, but you know, it, I guess that could happen. Um, the, the, I don't think the, the reason for that possession limit that you and I are talking about is, is being addressed for a guy like yourself or myself who loves to eat ducks, you know, I mean, I mean, if our doctors knew we were eating that much red meat, they'd have, a, they'd have a stroke, <laughs> much less us, no you know, but I mean, we love it and, and we do eat it and we eat it every week and we eat it sometimes several times a week. And during the season, I mean, when we're in Canada, we eat ducks four or five days a week for either for the main course or for appetizers or whatever, you know, we make them all different kinds of ways. And, you know, and when you're there, we eat them more than that because we just, you know, come up with new ways to cook them exactly. <laughs> on the grill outside while we're playing horseshoes or whatever. So, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, that, that's an interesting question and, and, and I'll, I'll find out the answer to that. But, uh, um, it, it does, it does inhibit people who love to eat waterfowl, you know? It, I mean, it, it, I get it. You, you, you have to, it's almost like they're penalizing the good guys for what they think the bad guys or the quote unquote outlaw is going to do. And I get it. If you come into my house and you see 200 ducks in my freezer, you're like, did you just kill those yesterday? Right. Well, I mean, you didn't catch me doing it. They're all marked and dated and vacuum sealed. You can tell I take pride in, in my wild game and, and, sure. and how we take care of it. We don't want it to get freezer burnt. We know how to drain it and get the blood out of it. There's a lot that goes into being a good processor and butcher. And, and totally. that's a, and we take a lot of pride in that. I've seen you and my brother out there with elk and sheep and cutting them up and vacuum sealing them and, and doing all kinds of stuff with the meat. And yeah. I don't know. It's just a question to me because I, I, I'm straight up. A lot of times I have more than my possession limit in my freezer. And I hope that, that, that it gets to the point to where that it's trusted that we're not, I'm right. not going to go out and break. I don't want to. I don't get off on killing no. 50 ducks. I wouldn't do it if you, maybe no. I would if you could, if it was legal once in a while, but Killing 50 ducks means you got to clean 50 ducks. And then you have to do something with them. And then you got to do something with them. I, I, yeah. I, I, I love having big parties and, and making awesome recipes for people with duck. I have a lot of pride in that. And I want duck. A lot of times if I'm out of it, I call you and say, hey, can you bring some duck over? Sure. What's the law on that? Am I legally allowed to eat your ducks? <laughs> yes, I don't, you are. <laughs> it's just there's so many, there's so many like, things you got to weave through as a waterfowl hunter. Right. I understand. And I'm, the reason I'm asking this because you brought up a great point is 
Maybe that is why our numbers are dwindling in waterfowl population, licenses being bought, Mm -hmm. duck stamps being brought. That brings up a question is why do we have to have a state stamp for every state we go to? Most states have a duck stamp. And then you have to have the federal stamp, which the price just increased to 40 from 25. Uh, Yeah, it went up some. I'm not sure what it is, but yeah. Is that... Does all that money from the state stamp go into wetlands for that state and all that federal money, does that go into supporting duck hunting? Is that a big part of why Ducks Unlimited or the, our, our, our feds are, are able to do what they do? Sure. I think the, the answer to your question is no, that all of that money doesn't go to that depending on the state. Um, in Nevada, I, I think it has for the most part, but it's a small amount in Nevada. You know, it's not, not hundreds of thousands of hunters or anything. Um, Matter of fact, Nevada this year did away with all stamps. They raised the cost of the license, and each license that's purchased, X amount of that money goes into the duck, you know, what would be the duck stamp fund, but there is no stamp anymore. Same thing with, with the Upland. We don't have an Upland stamp anymore. You know, it's just they just increase the, the cost of the license, and everybody shares that cost of a trout stamp equally, you know. and the, But the money's taken out of there and put to, towards those programs, but... Um, and I'm not sure that's the answer. That's just Nevada's answer. And I believe if you ask the Department of Wildlife why, they would just tell you that the cost of administering a stamp program outweighed the benefits of having the stamp. You know, it costs too much to do it. So can I get one if I'm a collector, or are they gone for good? Oh, I think good? they're gone for good. Really? I don't so believe they're... we're going to have any more. I think your, your collection is complete. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, but I believe that's correct. When you... Matter of fact, I know it's right. Yeah, that is right. When we've talked about, you know, John and the farming and, and you and I discussed this, we both hunt Idaho. Mm-hmm. We both hunt a lot of places where there is what is flooded corn. And that brings us to ethical or normal traditional farming practices. Right. Is hunting over flooded corn baiting with the way it draws ducks in? It's, it can be, it can be incredibly effective. I mean, we've seen it, you know, where it's just crazy effective um but there's a lot of corn in the western united states um and all of it that you flood doesn't magically attract ducks you know it's it's more because of where you are with that flooded corn than and and so who's to say that if you grew millet instead of corn they wouldn't come into that okay you see what i'm saying i don't i think i think it's it's the fact that there is a crop not that it is that crop um and as far as normal agricultural practices go, you can do that by flooding corn because eventually it's going to dry out. And then you go in and harvest it and, and uh, um, you know, silage it or not silage it, but, you know, you seed corn or feed corn, whatever. It'll be feed corn in that case. But, um, uh, you know, you can still you can you can get dual benefit from that crop. And 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 there are places, you know, like specifically where you and I hunt in Idaho, um, where that duck crop is just as important as that corn crop on that 300 acres or 500 acres. Now, not globally in Idaho for the hundreds of thousands of acres of corn there is, right? But in those spots, that that duck crop brings in as much, if not more money, well, in most cases, way more money than that corn is ever going to bring in. So, you know, yes, you, you have augmented, you know, you're, you're changing you're getting the, you're attracting the ducks to come there because that corn is in that water or you put that water in the corn rather. But, um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, and not cause I hunt it and because it's great and all that. I just, I just think you, if you stop that activity, 
you're going to kill duck hunting in half of the country. And not to mention the nutritional value it provides for ducks up and down the flyway. Well, and not just on the way down in the fall. They all eat there at the same restaurant on the way back to Canada. And they're not getting hunted. And they're not getting hunted then, and we're feeding them for free. I mean, uh, you know, not to blow our own horn, but all of the crops we put in at the at the duck club here at the canvasback club never get harvested. They stay in the field. The ducks eat, the, you know, beat them up pretty bad in the fall and winter, and then they go on south if that's what they do and then as they come back north they get the rest of it because there's a lot of ducks out at the club when we were out there a couple weeks ago yeah, man. and they're still benefiting off of that food source totally absolutely so on the bill in idaho a couple a month or a month and a half ago it was potentially going on the legislature bill to outlaw flooded corn practices for the use of waterfowl hunting i read it and i I've, I've heard that it's been taking off taken off since right. i don't know if you have because you you know i've heard the same thing you're the one that told me about it and then so i checked into it and uh um it, it appears as though that bill has been withdrawn at this moment or that portion of is it bill. a normal farming practice to put water on a corn crop no then why is it legal to hunt ducks on it when they say you're not allowed to manipulate or create an unethical or un um not a traditional farming practice well i don't know am i where i'm going with that, that davis because we both hunt down in california a lot is it normal farming practices to flood a rice field after it's been harvested is it a normal farming practice in california to raise rice that's all brought there okay corn isn't natural to idaho rice isn't natural to california we created the the you know the anomaly by bringing it there in the first place it's there okay they're going to grow corn in Idaho. They're going to grow rice in the California Valley, you know. Um, and the ducks are going to eat it one way or the other, whether you're shooting at them or not. They're going to be in there eating it. Um, is, is it, you know, I guess that depends on how broad your definition of a normal farming practice is, you know. Um, as long as you're getting that crop out of the field or in the case of the canvasback club not getting that crop you know we planted it for the birds let them have it you know yeah we're going to shoot a few birds in november and december over that that's great good for us but a whole lot more birds than those are going to benefit from it and uh, yeah i just i don't see the i don't see the downside to that and you know, i'm playing devil's advocate because i don't sure. see the downside either it's um you you go to North Dakota, South Dakota in November and put some spinning wings and maybe a dozen decoys out in a cornfield, you'll have some of the most powerful mallard duck, some other puddle ducks, but mainly mallards consistently. Yeah. It'll blow your mind. Canada and the peas, the same thing. Like, where do you draw the line? What is normal? Like, is that normal to, um, are you allowed to go in there and-, and You and got it. Is that baiting when That's all that corn's point. on the ground, when you're feeding your livestock with it? Where right. is that? Where? How do you draw the line in any of this? Sure. I mean, there you don't have to put water on it because you've knocked it all down and presumably harvested most of it. But there's there's spill grain in every, you know, uh, look at those pea fields in Canada. I mean, how many peas are in those fields after they've harvested? Well, there's them? no way a combine is going to get them all. No, right? no, it's not. And same with corn, you know, even though it's bigger and easier to get, there's still going to be waste crop. And, and so great, something's using it, you know, and something, you know, this is, is beneficial to the environment as as you know, waterfowl and deer and, and all of the other things that, that benefit from that. Um, but see, I, I don't see any difference in that guy laying in that dry field in, in North Dakota shooting them after they've harvested the corn than the guy sitting on his tule stool in the standing corn in Idaho shooting them. And then at the end of the season or whenever they dry it up, they're going to harvest that corn too. It's just a matter of when they harvested it. 
you know. Yeah, you put water on it, but I don't. Uh, They'd come there if it was dry. Right. Kill and the birds wouldn't come there at all if there wasn't agriculture. Yeah. Okay. And they you and they, forget it. They're not coming. Hundred percent. What's the difference then in in Kansas? You can let a feeder go off and whitetail hear that, and they know what time it's going off yeah. during the day, and they run in. Yeah. Or in states where baiting or or whatever you define it as is illegal, but you can go out and and take out these trees in this area and plant a food crop in there with some unbelievable nutritional value food source, put salt licks around, whatever it is. And is that different? Because now no. you've, you've created this little feeding ground for these deer to come into and you put your blind up on it and draw your, your, your bow back and smoke one. What, what's the difference between it going off and feeding corn on the ground like they illegally can do in Kansas? Right. Or is it as opposed to a different state of like Iowa to where there's food plots being grown in every, every piece of the state now because sure. of the whitetail population and and the difference well the, the there there is no difference and uh, and but when you talk about that versus waterfowl hunting okay the main difference is that the the birds migrate across many state lines you know it's a federally mandated mm. law you know as opposed to each individual states i think the states are far better at managing their wildlife than the federal government is at managing it for us I mean, really, in my experience, that's been the case. And every state has its issues and everything, but they're there every day. They're not trying to manage everything globally, you know, from the from the control tower. It's I mean, just the thought process they're, they're around, on the ground. In, in Idaho specifically this year, which, you know, Idaho can be awesome for mallard duck hunting. Of be, course. It's known as a big game state for sheep and elk and deer and antelope. And it's got great fishing. It has some good duck hunting around it. Yes, it does. Okay, and but, it's not but, really a secret like it, no. people think it is. Duck Commander was shooting there on videos 15 years ago. There's places that At you least. go. There's gun clubs there. And then where I'm going with this, Dave, is that up until last year, the year before, outfitting and guiding for, for elk and deer and all that, you could legally do in the state of Idaho. But when it came to waterfowl hunting, it was illegal to guide or outfit, correct? That is correct. So they make it legal, which is what? That's income, livelihood, jobs for guys to go out and become an outfitter mm -hmm. and then you're going to take away the source that they kill the ducks with <laughs> right so exactly. i want to go book a hunt to go to idaho and you're an outfitter but what do you mean we can't hunt the flooded corn anymore right I, it's just backwards to me like yeah go make your living doing this but you can't do it this way anymore right does that make sense to you no none at all it's you know, it, it's it's it, it is um you know there are people getting involved in the equation who are unfamiliar with how the whole thing works first of all Okay. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't have good ideas or anything. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that, you know, you have to have a global picture of how this works, you know, both hunting and how hunting works with conservation and how hunters' dollars make conservation happen. And, you know, you, you, you cut out the hunter and you cut out a huge amount of our conservation effort in the United States. I don't care whether you're hunting deer or whatever it is. I mean, um, you know, but certainly ducks because we're losing you know, we're, we're losing the battle on the numbers game with ducks, the numbers game of hunters. You know, the ducks are doing fine. <laughs> if you just take a place like like John Shaw's place up there and you have a membership up there that you got, you can go in there and hunt mallards in what he's created, which mm -hmm. is an amazing property. Incredible. Incredible. You've hunted around that area. You've yep. hunted other incredible properties right in that same valley in Hagerman. What he does for conservation and, and right. the shorebirds – the rodents, the predators, the mule deer, 
that are gaining nutritional value off of his property. The ducks come through there. Yes, he attracts ducks. He has guys that harvest ducks, but the amount of ducks is so multiplied on a different level compared to what's being harvested. It's, I, I just want to make sure that people understand that this is a hunter doing this with the, the heart of a hunter. It's not to destroy right. the population or create no. genocide on ducks we love ducks. We John Shaw and guys that are developing these properties all over the country love ducks. We love watching them. And right now, or not right now, but a month ago, you could go up to Idaho and sit in a bird tower and, and see the most magnificent sight ever because of that property. When they're eating it, like we said, on their way back up the flyway, yeah. getting oh. fat to go to make that voyage. It's cold way up there where they fly. It is. They got to have some carbohydrates in them to make it and have the energy to sustain it. So everything to me is backwards. Like you want, hunters to hunt but then you want to take away they do it and then you're going to say that the reason that you're taking it away is because you're killing you have the ability to kill too many of them what we just said that there's no market hunting anymore right we're not going out and killing them and going to sell them for market we're not doing it right so it's just i i just and think there's about fewer people doing and there's it. fewer people doing it, but it's harder to do it's yes. it be, everything in life becomes harder and harder the more that you group a, a big group of people around it and there's just different it's almost like and it may, I'm comparing it to, to predator hunting is like the, the first thing that a lot of people say when you bring up a coyote is, oh, I hate them. God damn. I'm like, what? How can you say that I hate coyotes? Right. You know, I, I, that drives me nuts. They're the most adaptable animal on the planet. And trust me, the reason that your dog got taken out of your backyard is that you shouldn't have had a puppy out there in the first place. That's right. We moved into that coyote's backyard, and now we're going to say that we need to get rid of all the coyotes? Right. No, exactly. we're, we, we're not going to. So you know what I'm saying? It's like a backwards ideology of like predator management is important. We understand that. But you can't blame the coyote. Okay, you gotta you gotta take the good with the bad and everything. And if sure. you're gonna if you're gonna build housing communities way out in the mountains like we live out here in Nevada, you're gonna have coyotes in your backyard. You know what I'm saying? And if you're going to be a, a manager of land and you're going to be a hunter and you're going to provide habitat and food and nutrition for ducks and you're going to harvest some off them, I don't want it to. I don't want people to look at it like you're doing this to benefit to benefit off of killing tons and tons of ducks. Right. You're not doing it. You're not, that's not, there, there's so much conservation efforts that goes into a land management. And w if you're allowed to grow food plots to attract white-tailed deer and turkeys, then w w there's 14 million deer hunters in the country. There's, there's a lot of different ways that you can go kill a deer. It's obvious. That's why so many people do it. Sure. Why take away another part of what we do as duck hunters or even bring it up? It's already hard enough to kill them. They're hard to kill. You know what I'm saying? I'm not mm -hmm. saying that you have to be a genius to kill ducks, no. but you got there's, it's getting harder and harder to find places to do it. It is. It is. And, and we're losing places, you know, the wetlands are shrinking, not increasing, you know, the hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, um, honestly, agriculture has saved waterfowl in this country if, with the loss of wetlands without replacing that in, in many places with some or, or without agriculture being created there, whether it was at the, cost of wetlands or not you know we, we wouldn't have the we wouldn't i mean they just wouldn't be here there, there's not enough out there for them without without america's farmer making it happen yeah we've always and said that canada's farmers too yeah 100 percent. farming yeah. makes the world go round and the the conservation that farming provides the food sources that farming provides mississippi flyway for example you follow the mississippi river corridor down from the north to the south Yes, there's a lot of corn, you know, around that area, Missouri River, Mississippi River. Then you get into the Grand Prairie of Arkansas, and it's the rice country. 
And you could go, arguably, you could go and say, well, you know, the rice is attracting ducks to that. Well, they've been going there for hundreds of years. And then you got the flooded timber. Well, these timber plots, that's what that whole area used to look like. And the timber was cut down and made for rice. Well, the ducks are still going into that flooded timber. And when they're in the timber, you can't shoot them out of there. So are you going to tell people to quit hunting in the timber because it's attracting ducks? There's just so, you can't tell a farmer, you can't tell a hunter. Yeah, you can you can look at the ducks going in that cornfield, but you can't hunt them because they're in corn. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Why can't I hunt them? Well, because there's corn on the ground. They're feeding their livestock. Well, that's, that's natural. That's happened. They, that's right. We're not going to go in there and murder them. But that's not the people who are making this rule. That's what I was saying about the, they just come from an uninformed place about the specific thing they're trying to regulate. Okay. And they, they just need to be better informed about it. Your, your example just is perfect. You know, I mean that, the it's, um, you know, if, if we're going to have duck hunting and, and, you know, you and I certainly hope that that's going to be the case, um, those things are going to exist. I mean, the ducks are going to go in those rice fields when they come south through California, whether you want them to or not, doesn't matter. And if a, and if a farmer can stay in business longer, do better, feed his family better, send his kids to a better college by selling, you know, by putting in a couple of duck hunting pits out in that rice field and selling that in the wintertime. How can you tell him he can't do that? Why would you tell him he can't do that? Well, I mean, we just sat here for the last 30, 40 minutes and talked about the evolution of gear and products and boats and being able to get to them and, and, and spinning wings and, and better ammo and better guns. And, and now we're talking about actually farming practices that attract ducks and, mm-hmm. and the nutritional value that provides you are you're you're taking this same amount of hunters probably less than there were five six ten years ago in the duck hunting world there's way more ducks in the flyways right now than there were five years ago you correct me if i'm wrong but the studies show and the the migration patterns show that there's more ducks pretty much across the board for each species right now what study could tell you more that something good is happening with the heart of the hunter, the conservation dollar going towards licenses and stamps, guys like John Shaw that are creating duck properties like that. What evidence, what more do you need to know? There's more ducks and all yeah. of this stuff is going on. The sure. thing that there's not more of is hunters because right. we're, we're making it more difficult for them to enjoy it. Which means that the ones who continue to do it pony up more and more every year. Yeah. You know, so, not that you're paying for your right to shoot a limited ducks. And I'm not saying that you're, you're paying you're paying to see them migrate every year is what you're paying or what I'm paying for. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that personally, you know, I want to see those birds. I want to get to Canada and see them come off of the, the boreal forest and off of the tundra there. And I want to be here when they come through here. And if I can shoot them great, you know, I'm much more apt to be out there more days if I can kill a few ducks and eat them. But, um, uh, you know, that's the conservation dollar goes. It's so often, People say, yeah, you know, the, that money's spent by the hunters, but they just do it so they can shoot a bunch of birds. Well, whatever, okay? Maybe they do do that so they can shoot some birds. I don't. I do it so the birds will be there. Yeah. So my kids will have the opportunity to see them. I remember when my dad used to take me hunting, and this is, you know, some little backwater marsh in Virginia, and he'd just say, you know, we'd be there at night and quitting time would come and pick up whatever birds we had, whatever, and... You just sit there and watch the wood ducks come in by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, you know, just, I mean, they're landing on the water next to you. The dogs are going crazy. And, and he'd look at us. I can see him doing it right now. My brother and sister and I saying, and you remember what this looks like, because I'm afraid it won't be around when you're my age. And I'm lucky it is around. 
and I'm his age. At least, yeah. I'm way older than he was when he told me that. Yeah. And and I want and I've told my kids that, and I want them to tell their kids that. I want them to be aware that they need to watch out for it, that they need to take care of it, yeah. or it won't be there. For damn sure, it won't be there. Yeah. You know, but it can be, and you know, it, it's only going to matter if it matters to people, and and, when and you, it matters to us. When you say us, I I, I don't know if it. PETA and the antis and, and, and there's some good that comes you know, the, I love the Autobahn and I, I understand that we don't, we don't agree with hunting, but to say that we want it to end, like that's ignorance to me and their, their money's not going in to protect wildlife. So for them to say, we want birds to be here when our kids are our age and we are, and we want them to have their PETA card and we want them to raise that flag every chance they get. Well, you, 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 your kids better hope that there's hunters around because those birds aren't going to be there. Those elk aren't going to be there. Those turkeys aren't going to be there sure. if the hunters aren't there. That's right. Is that fair to say? That is totally fair to say. And when you, and we could talk about that. I mean, I, I, I get like, I just get chills thinking about, it, but I, I mean, I, when you say watching birds, I mean, I get my head ripped off a lot in the blind because I'm not very good at calling the shot. And a lot of people are like, well, he's trying to get the perfect shot. And you know, a lot of what, with what we do, I do like the glory of a bird. I love seeing a bird be a bird. I love seeing a coyote charge with a mouth call and a decoy out there and letting them be a coyote and hunt you. I love when the birds start hunting you, hunting you up. And I'm in awe a lot. I get stuck in translation a lot because I'm like, oh my gosh, man. Yeah. I just, I think I just called them in. Maybe I didn't, but it doesn't matter. They're here and look at them. And watch them. And I know I, I love to shoot them and I love to kill them. I love seeing a dog go and bring a mouthful of mallard back. And then I love seeing them on the grill and hearing the sizzle. But just that aura and that awe and that jaw dropping ability for ducks to be ducks and create that power. And it doesn't matter if you're watching them from a mile away and seeing the silhouettes go down with the sun right. behind them. Yep. But when you're underneath them, it's hard for me to call the shot now in my hunting career because I love the majesty of it. I, I had a 12 year old kid was in the field with me in Canada a couple years ago and these birds came in just beautiful. And there was probably 150 mallards in this flock and they circled, you know how they go really, really fast, really fast, really fast. And then they start to slow down usually the pass before when they're going to land. And they came over us and they were seven or eight feet off the deck and they didn't land and they just went around and the kid looked at me in his layout plan. He goes, how much closer do you think they're going to get? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but we're going to find out on this next pass. <laughs> <laughs> and they landed and you know and when we shot it was great and his dad looked over at me and he goes that's the coolest thing i've ever seen because 90 percent of the people i've ever hunted with you'd have never gotten past pass number three those birds went around seven times before you called the shot and i go yeah it's you know we're gonna get our chance to kill our birds man that's why i come that gets me i remember that i remember that exact flock of birds out of thousands of flocks of birds i've been lucky enough to see and i know that kid will never forget it you know and his dad certainly won't so. yeah because the ideology behind it is if you want to shoot something and see it break go shoot a clay target right if you want to eat go to the store and buy some beef or go to a farmer and, and get some beef there's got to be more to that hunt than just seeing something die or providing for your family and i like both parts of that sure. but it's that it's it's the the preparation the 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 community of a duck hunter that's why i love stuttgart is just the it's i've talked crazy. about it. just it's crazy the community of a duck hunter there you don't find that in very many places if anywhere in the country not for a whole town yeah not for a whole town don't. um but what you're explaining is why i hunt and what gets me going and what i look forward to is that you you can go to a clay target 
sporting clay course and shoot and be happy. Like, Oh my God, I just shot a 77 out of a hundred. I could go to a restaurant and eat a piece of beef. And I'm like, that's the best meal I've ever had. And you can go in and shooting a duck is cool. And seeing it die is cool, but it's sad to me. I get emotional because you're taking something's life. So there is a yep. responsibility there. And if you're not emotional about it, then you shouldn't be hunting. In my opinion, there is something sad of seeing a bird die. Sure. That's why we film on a lot of this high speed now. And you get to see them die in slow motion. You very, very rarely see it on our show to where a bird gets crushed in slow motion and then falls all the way to the ground. I'm just like, really? Yeah. what in the freak are you trying to show there? And I'm not teach yeah. its own, but I'm more into it of what happens when I see you in the parking lot at the wagon wheel. That's what I'm into. Like when we hug each other and we, and Hey, duck tacos, da, 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 boom, right. cornhole, cold beer, cocktail stories, memories, dogs, family, JD, Katie, chase coming up, chance and Caden, my daughter, Alyssa, my brother's Clinton clay, your brother, Alan, all the relationships that have been formed. We could literally sit here and go through our cell phones right now, Dave Stanley, and go down a list of people <laughs> that we've met because of this lifestyle of hunting and fishing. And people are like, those guys are a-holes. No, we're not. We're not murderers, man. We are, a lot of us are educated. A lot of us are very passionate about life and loving family members and, and raising our kids the right way. We've been brought up the right way because of hunting. We learn how to drive trucks, like you said, and wreck boats and duck marshes because of hunting. You know what I'm saying? Hunting is so much more. And, and we, we've been talking today for two hours and 10 minutes and we're going to end it here in the next couple minutes, but we are going to do it again because I got an entire, I mean, you can see how long this list is of, and, and, <laughs> and to hear you talk and how educated you are just from geography. It's like being around Keith Allen, just your, 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 your stance on politics, as far as knowing politics, your biology, science, um, the geography of, of the lay of the land and the, and the rivers and the swans and where they, where they frequent is, you have a ton of knowledge to offer, but you're also at heart, you're still a kid of hunting and there's still things about this sport. Like when you mentioned the smell of the Stillwater Marsh, there's nowhere else on earth that smells like it. And you could pick it out like it. I could pick out the smell of the front door of your cabin or the smell I smell at the corrals or when I'm in the timber at Prairie Wings in Arkansas, I go, that's Arkansas, that's Prairie Wings. Because that, and that's what a hunter does. We, we were talking about it on, uh, on, on the drives we make and how we're always looking for wildlife and it makes our drive so much more enjoyable. Yes. It's Absolutely. could be unsafe. You gotta be safe, yeah. but hunters look for wildlife and it makes, it's awesome. So for sure. I want you to come back this, the way that you are, the way that you've lived your life is, I mean, I could go on and on. We haven't even gotten into your mentorship programs and your green wing stuff and the kids camps you do and the, the amount of energy and sweat equity and, and elbow grease that you put into ensuring that next generation of hunters, conservationists, gatherers, fishermen, fishers, um, you, you, you do, we're going to talk about that. Let's just have a little bit of fun before you, you're, you're a guitar player. You're a songwriter. You sit around my camp, my fire pit here we've been around a lot of campfires and camp and duck camps you and clay playing the guitar you you write lyrics and a lot of your inspiration comes from what we just discussed for the last two hours and it's easier to do things in life with that passion and that vision of of what hunting creates in, in my opinion i get up every day with this thirst of I want to like today I learned so much sitting with you and I've known you 20 years and I want everybody to understand what you know and what you've gained out of this career not for them to say oh raw raw look at Dave whatever I want them to be like man that guy gets there's it. More to it there's more to it than pulling that trigger and there's so many individuals that we met and where I'm going with this is that from our days together in Stuttgart and watching the world duck and being around John and being around Angie and being around Jim Ronquest and Bobby Joe Willie and 
what are your favorites? Who are your favorite people? Can you even pick them? Because all, it's like everybody was cut from this cloth when they became a duck hunter. And I often ask, like, right now, who's the best duck caller that you know? Can't say John David. Got to go past John David. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And John David's tough to beat. Well, I've gotten to, you and I, you mentioned three or four of them right there. I've, I've gotten to hunt with, with Keith Allen and Jim Ronquist and John Stevens and Bobby Joe Willie and all of those would be on the list. I mean, Trey Crawford. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. First time I ever hunted in Arkansas, I hunted with Trey Crawford. Just luck of the draw. Had no idea who he was. I told John David, and he goes, Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> and Drake, and, Trey. And I, I've known him since then. But, um, you know, there's, it's, it's more, it, it really for me, it's the places because the people come with the places, you know. Um, you and I used to go hauling those kids around a duck calling contest and ourselves, you know, to the, the contest that we did out uh, on the coast there in Oregon. It was amazing, you know, just, and the group of people that was involved with that. I mean, that's one of those things you just think of. Um, Stuart McCullough. Yeah. Yeah. The guys in California who did the same thing. You know, we all had to, you know, if if you chase the duck calling thing, like I did with my kids and, and lots of people have done in the West, it's hard to do. You know, you got a couple of chances, so you got to load up and go, you know. Yeah, and, we, and you did that. And yeah. John David was evident of that. Katie won the world junior female for the women's duck. standing right beside me when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> JD's won the world intermediate goose calling championship. And he's, yeah. and he's placed in the top 10 in the world goose and the world yep. duck so many times. Um, you, 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 we, so it's more of the place. To answer your question, I'll, I have a lifetime of friends. And like you say, I'll be scrolling through thinking I'm looking for something in my phone and I'll see a guy's name. It's a guy I've hunted with in ten years, but I had a great time with him in in a camp in Louisiana or what. And I'll just call him, you know. Yeah. And it'll be just like we were hunting together last week, yeah. you know. It's it's that kind of fraternity and and uh, uh, the the passion that people have, and and you and your brothers are 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 huge believers in this, and and you carry the flag for it. I mean the the, the passion you have and your ability to share it with other people um, is what's going to make hunting continue. In, in the U.S., you know, um, because we, we are going to forever be, and it's just going to get worse, the political pressures and, you know, is this good, is it bad, is it whatever, and, and you know, we need people whose lives are ultimately changed forever by it and can express that to people so that they realize it's not, hey, I went out there and killed my limit in six and a half minutes this morning, you know, which I could care less about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. When, when, when you would, you know, you talk about people like, We've we've mentioned the guys in Arkansas. Mr. Butch was a big part of that. Or you got Butch, Butch Buck, or, yeah. Okay. Or you got Joe Lairs over in in, yep. in California, who's a, a a genius when it comes to parts and 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 his dental career and what he's done with his duck call company. Or that's, Brett Crow, that's owned by Brett place. Crow now. That's an yeah. awesome duck Phenomenal caller guy. and a great man. And his dad's a great man. Just great people. And a lot of what we do in the off season, during the season, preseason is wrapped around that what you just said that passion when we get together now we get together a lot now because of our passion for the outdoors and a lot of times our get-togethers are wrapped around wild game and fish and and, and eat ducks and geese and elk and deer and that's what i love about the heart of a hunter is that we've already talked about what we're going to grill tonight we've already talked about our plans for next duck season and and things that could come up and what we're going to be doing together we just got you know a month ago we're out on the marsh doing a photo shoot with the boats Mm -hmm. and watching ducks and it's just like if if these antis and the people that say it's not good and i don't want my kids in it they should at least give it a shot to see what it really brings and what you explained and what we discussed today is what hunting really brings and 
I understand. There's a lot of different lifestyle. Tom loves to ski. People love to golf. You love to golf. You take Chase all the time. Um, but to to know what hunting does for a, a seven year old like Chase, and what it does for our relationship, I think it's the strongest way and the strongest bond there is out there. I might be wrong. Uh, in my opinion, there's just no better friendship than a hunting friendship. And uh, you you talked you talked about those guys that you can call up, and it's been years since you talked to them. They answer the phone. Oh, you must have heard we got ducks. It's you know they, they know <laughs> exactly. what's up. They know what's getting ready to be talked about. And and that's what I love about. It. So we we are going to do it again, Dave. Um, everything that you do from the guide and the fly fishing trips, Truckee river outfitters and what you do at the Reno fly shop and the traditions that you've passed down, John, David and Katie and what you've instilled in them, what you're doing with chase. You picked him up the other day and took him golfing. You've picked him up and took him fly fishing. When clay's busy, you come to the baseball games, you go to the, the camps, you teach kids gun safety and boat safety and calling instruction and duck identification. And then you're working with biologists here. You sat on the board for the Nevada bighorns. You sat on the board for the game commission. You, you know, I've always said it and I'm not, always going to say it. you're and if people look up what a renaissance man is you're a renaissance man of the outdoors you can shoot a bow you can shoot a rifle you can shoot a shotgun you can call a duck you can call a turkey your son's the same way our family has benefited off of the friendship and the relationship because it's driven my passion you were the first one to really nail down that blood in me of being a waterfowl hunter and i thank you i know if clinton clay were sitting right here they would thank you and the thing about it is that it's it's not over because yeah. even when you're 80 and I'm 65 and we're sitting there watching chase do his thing at the world duck. And we're watching Alyssa catch her first fish on a fly rod. And it's going to happen way before that. She's already reeled in her first trout when John yep. David hooked it. I don't even know if that's legal. Can a seven year old reel in? <laughs> yes, they can. <laughs> so I, I thank you as a friend and yeah. I'm glad you came by, but I really want you to come by again. Cause I want to get into recipes. I want to get in to more farming stuff that we've talked about. We started with John. We went to John Shaw. I want to learn more about what your thoughts are on. And I really want to get into the migration and we, I wanted to get into it today about all the things that you get to do and all the, uh, you, you still start in Canada every year and, and stay yep. up there for a good 20, 25, 30 days. I want to get into that. And I want to talk about, this passion of hunting more. And I want people to understand that there's stories out there. There's light, there's people living their lives out there that are benefiting people and animals in so many different ways. And it's not about that trigger. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Man. So I think it. right now it's, uh, it's almost two o'clock, which, wow. I think you were later. We've talked for a long time. <laughs> so you got two choices right now. We can either cook some duck or go eat sushi. Uh, we can flip a coin on that. Either one's good. All right, buddy. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> All right. Appreciate you. Pal. You bet. <laughs>